Check, check. Okay. Schlamazo. Half and Scotch Incorporated. <laughs> Welcome to the Duke and Duchess Podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 118, where we will be covering Gardens of the Moon by Steven Erickson. In this episode, we will cover the prologue and chapter one. In our next book club episode, we'll be covering chapters two and three. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance that this might be your first exposure to the Duke and Duchess podcast. So let's take an aside a little bit out of our normal routine and let's tell them just a little bit about who we are. First thing to know about this podcast is we cover everything in a spoiled, unspoiled format, meaning that we have one person, Liz, who is a very fast reader and has read everything in the fantasy universe. And we have me, who is a slow reader uh, and has does not have that sort of exposure. Uh, and so what happens is that Liz goes through from the spoiled perspective. She understands what's going on. I am new to the material and reading it for the first time, and we get my reaction to it. But we don't spoil anything past the chapters we have read that week. Do you want to tell them a little bit about sort of your background with fantasy and where you're coming to all this from? Absolutely. I, I've i been reading fantasy my as long as I can remember. Series that got me kind of hooked on fantasy. I started with Arthurian fiction, and that got me, it was like my gateway drug into fantasy. Uh, my, my first big fantasy series that I read was The Wheel of Time when that was coming out. So that's one of my all-time favorites. Um, all of my other all-time favorites we've covered on this podcast. We have covered The Kingkiller Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss. We've covered The Gentleman Bastards by Scott Lynch. And we have covered The Stormlight Archives by Brandon Sanderson. So some of my favorite authors include those. And I've been very excited to dig into this, the Malazan Book of the Fallen, because of I, I've, I've read this series at least the first couple books several times. I have not completed my way through it. And I and I think I've, when I started reading this series, um, because I'm a fast reader, and I tend to just tear through books very quickly, uh, I had a hard time getting hooked into this series. I have enjoyed reading this book so far so much more since I've been taking notes for this, for this show. It's really increased my enjoyment of the book. So I'm really excited to dig into it. Yeah, agreed. I, I think this is a, a good series for a deep dive. Having read all of one chapter, I can I can give you that perspective. <laughs> but I do think it's important for people to note that one of the things about our podcast is that we dive really deep. We tend to read these things slowly, take notes, read them a couple times, so we really dig into things and analyze it at a at a pretty deep level. But we also don't take ourselves too seriously. We make awful awful jokes all the time. And uh, we are an explicit podcast. Not that I think we go out of our way to do that, but we are adults and we talk about things of an adult nature. And sometimes our books cover things that are of an adult nature. So it's probably not the best podcast for little ears. And I'll also tell you, 
If you want to be a part of the overall sort of community and be able to discuss what's going on, uh, you'll hear at the end of the podcast, we'll go through a bunch of listener questions. And if you're curious about how to get involved in all of that, best place to go is to the Facebook group page. Uh, you'll find on Facebook that we have a Facebook sort of official fan page that really is just sort of there that we don't do a whole lot with. And then we have a Duke and Duchess podcast group, and that's where most of the actual interaction happens. So enough of the uh, sort of about us. Do you want to sort of give a breakdown of how we tend to cover things, sort of a what to expect as we go through this? Sure. What you can expect from this podcast is going to be uh, each section or chapter that we cover. We'll give sort of a very general summary, and then we'll go through it and discuss each plot point that happens. And then at the end, we'll go into some topical analysis, themes and character breakdowns and stuff like that. Uh, and once we cover all of that, we den- we will go through listener interactions from uh, questions people have asked on Twitter or the Facebook group page. Uh, and then Chad gets to give predictions. Yes. Which is my favorite part of what he thinks is going to happen next. And, and they, I get to practice my poker face. Yes. <laughs> and neither of us are good at what we do. <laughs> <laughs> This is sort of the housekeeping stuff that we will not do every podcast episode. But since we have uh, probably some new folks coming to this, we wanted to kind of give you a little background, a chance to sort of plug you in uh, to what we've been doing over the last few years to kind of catch you up. Before we get into the actual text, I have one other important thing that I want to bring up, and that is pronunciation. Yes. So we are book readers. We're not audiobook uh, listeners. So we'll come up with some creative pronunciation sometimes, and sometimes it's not right. So uh, that's your opportunity, you know, to reach out to us and let us know, hey, uh, that's not how you say it. You're driving me crazy. (laughs) Say it the right way. Uh, What I have come to figure out is that it seems like most of the pronunciation for the the multi-syllable words tends to fall in the second syllable. That's yes. one thing I've noted as a pattern. It's not perfect, yes. uh, but it's malazan, not malazan. As I've been calling it as for years. As I've been calling it for a long time as well. So uh, so that's one thing I'll try to do. Correct me if, if I'm wrong, but we'll do the best we can. Uh, and we are open to corrections. So with all that out of the way. Ten minutes into the podcast. Let's talk about the book. This book, in the very beginning, gives us a very helpful dramatis personae. Uh, Are you the type of reader that goes through and reads all of that stuff before you get into the narrative? Absolutely. You are. Oh, what were your thoughts on this dramatis personae? 100%. So, you know, that's something you see every once in a while. It's not a common thing by any stretch. Uh, But I like it. I think it gives sort of a certain dramatic flair to it. You know, and I think also... In this series, this book, we have a lot of characters. Yes. And I'll go back and reference it all the time. Yes. Another thing I think it's important is it sort of shows you what the author thinks is or isn't spoilery. Mm, you know, good so point. when the you know, when the the author says sorry is the a killer in the guise of a little girl, mm-hmm. uh, that's telling you that, you know, that's not anything that he's trying to be, you know, to beat around the bush about that. It is what it is. I think there are some people who would say, what does it say about your story and your writing that you need 
to have this sort of thing to reference back to. Uh, but probably not any of our listeners. Probably not. <laughs> I dig it. Our listeners tend to like to get in the weeds with us. I dig it too, uh, though I will say the first couple of times I read this book, I certainly skipped that. I am not the kind of person that will read every name. Um, I'll go back to it later. And I, and I think that's why, you know, the first time I read this book, I, well, I read it on an e-reader and I was like, I got about probably the equivalent of 150 pages in and I was like, what in the the cock of vagina is going on? I have no idea. And then I go back and I'm trying to read this dramatis persona and I still don't understand. And then I realize I have to get a hard copy. So I, I read the hard copy and I, I ended up tearing through it again and having to go back. So I read the first 150 pages like three times yeah. before I finally read it slowly enough. And I, I wonder if if fast readers have more of a problem with this series, the series is kind of divisive. I, I tend to have people either be like, oh, I couldn't read that. It was, um, no, I couldn't get into that at all. Or they absolutely loved it. And and I have found that I have been both of those people. The first time <laughs> I read it, I was like, this is crap, you know? But when I slowed down, and like I said, this time through sitting down and actually taking notes on paper, I'm bl- blown away by how much I've enjoyed it. But yeah, I don't like to read the whole list of names. I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I read the whole thing. <laughs> what happened? I probably read it eight times. That's amazing. I love that. So after the Dramatis Persona, we've got a couple of Snapters. Snapter, explain your term. Uh, what we call Snapters on this podcast are what normal people call the epigraph of a chapter, I believe. But we call it the snippet before the chapter or Snapter. Get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to read the first snapter that comes before the prologue because I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's such a taste of the gorgeous prose that you are in store for in this book. Um, and I just want to read it to start us off. It goes, Now these ashes have grown cold. We open the old book. These oil-stained pages recount the tales of the fallen. A frayed empire, words without warmth. The hearth has ebbed. Its gleam and life sparks are but memories against dimming eyes. What cast my mind, what hue my thoughts as I open the book of the fallen and breathe deep the scent of history? Listen then to those words carried on that breath. These tales are the tales of us all again yet again. We are history relived, and that is all. Without end, that is all. Mm. History. Damn, right? Repeating itself. I know. You know why history repeats itself? Oh, boy. Because it's old. <laughs> so it opens with, now these ashes have grown cold, we open the book. That is the first line. Mm-hmm. Come on, man, that's fucking metal. It's so <laughs> so metal. metal. <laughs> it's not a silence in three parts. Right. But it's pretty damn good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. The last two lines are my favorite. The The idea that we are history repeating itself, that it, that just gives me goosebumps right there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and having, because I, in this case, typically what happens for me is I read through everything one time, and then I go back and read through it again, taking notes. Right. But this time, because we had so much time... <laughs> I read this chapter like five times. Uh huh. So having read through everything and going back and reading the prologue, right? Prologue. You, 
it gives you a sense that you're looking back on something that ended terribly first, right? Yes. You, you know, much like the prologue that we talked about in Name of the Wind, right? Right. It gives you this sense of this isn't going to end well, right? Right. And that's how you start off. But the other thing I noted is that we begin talking about these things sort of at the, you know, as this empire is going through a violent revolution, right? Right. And it talks about this repeating itself, repeating itself, right? A, a very common theme in fantasy is, the, you know, this repetition of history. But it also gives me a sense of, like, the deposed ex-emperor mm -hmm. coming back and seeking revenge on his predecessor from the grave. Mm. I love that impression. And listen, when an author puts something in the beginning, like those first words... I mean, every syllable is weighed and measured and poured mm -hmm. over and agonized over. So you know it's it's deliberate. Every mm -hmm. part of every, there's nothing accidental about it. This is what they're trying to tell us is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And you know, when an author starts the book that way, and like you said before about the dramatis personae, kind of telling you what what's not a spoiler. And when the author puts so much out there in the beginning, it tells me that that author is not going to rely on sneaky plot twists in order to make the story interesting. And that yeah. in itself mm. strikes my interest. So let's talk about the second Snapter, because there's a lot of information given to us in this little poem as well. And it starts off, the emperor is dead, so too his right hand, now cold, now severed. Again, totally metal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I absolutely yeah. love it. And, and pardon me, I skipped ahead a little bit when I was talking about the, you know, the old emperor coming yes. back. That, that was actually what I was referencing. So yes. forgive me, I jumped ahead a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So this poem is seems a little bit of, of history and a little bit of foreshadowing or prophecy in there as well. It's from a poem called Call to, Sh Call to Shadow, written by someone named Felison or Felicin, let's go with that. Mm -hmm. And it talks about the emperor being killed. It talks about his his right hand being killed as well. And at the end, though, it talks about the dirge faint reprised before sun's fall, the day spills red on buckled earth and in obsidian eyes, vengeance chimes seven times. Again, looking ahead at the chapter that we're going to read, we know what this is talking about. Someone would might know what this was talking about. Yeah. Chad just gave me a wide-eyed look I gave of you the panic. puzzle. We do? <laughs> Tell me. You know what? We'll go through the plot points of chapter one, and then and then I'll give you a significant we'll about, look. We'll and talk you'll about be like, the obsidian eyes. Oh, and the those obsidian eyes. chimes. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. But so, yes, did you have, what are your thoughts on this Snapter? So that was where I met, like I said, I was talking about the emperor and revenge right. from the So you think the that the emperor is coming back from the grave that's what to I get think revenge. Is, that's what I think is totally going to happen. That's amazing. The other, the other um, thing that I wanted to note is that Felicin, or Felicin, I, I had some confusion when it said, you know, uh, Felicin B1146, because I thought so many times it'll say burn, sleep, year, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, is that, is that an abbreviation for burn, sleep? But then that didn't make sense unless there were two Felicins. But I assume that this is the sister 
of the person who is our main character, at least so far, um, Gano Peron. Yes. Who was born in 1146. And that and the math there would add up. Yes. Yes, you assume correctly. So right away with these two poems, the tone is set beautifully. Absolutely. Like I can tell that I'm going to read something thick and juicy, you know? And and something that's, it, it's there's probably not going to be a lot of romance. Right. There's probably... Like, it's a little grim. A little on the grim side. It's probably not going to be a lot of sh- sunshiny days. <laughs> but Malazan is like a porterhouse of a book, you know? It's not like... It's not Funyuns. It's not Funyuns. It's not... Like, I feel like Stormlight Archive is like a nice Cobb salad, you know? It's like, just really whole. For like maybe sushi. I don't know. It's kind of wholesome. You can just kind of scarf it down. You won't get a bellyache, yeah. you know? But Malazan is like, you got to take it slowly. I got to take it bite by bite. I can't just hork it down while I'm watching Friends, yeah. you know? <laughs> I have a lot of food analogies if you're new to the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> so so we go into the prologue. Are we ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The prologue occurs in the 1154th year of Burns' sleep, in the 96th year of the Malazan Empire, in the last year of Emperor Kellenved's reign. And we're going to break down those dates in just a minute. But what happens in this prologue, we open up on a young Ganos Paran, a young nobleman who is visiting Malazan City. He's climbed the wall to get a better look at the riots happening in the Mouse Quarter, one of the poorest sections of the city. The sprawling Malazan Empire is in turmoil after one of the emperor's most trusted officials enacted a ban on non-government-sanctioned sorcery. This official, formerly known as Surly, recently renamed herself Lazine and is enforcing her new laws with an iron fist. Ganos talks with a few members of the elite Bridgeburners division who aren't too impressed with Lazine's reforms. Lazine herself shows up, and it turns out she's not too impressed by the Bridgeburners, so there. <laughs> she sends them out of town, and the commander warns the boy to live quietly. Will he take his advice? And he does, and the book ends, and he lives a quiet... <laughs> no, no, he won't take his advice. Oh, it's not. It's a fantasy novel. That's not how this... Be- it's not how any of this it's works. not how any of this works. So, so, so my first note, again, first things, right? Right. So we open on Mox Vane, this 100-year-old wind vane. Yes. Uh, made into the leering visage of a demon. It's now covered in rust, squealing mm-hmm. in the wind. Steven Erickson used this image for a reason. Uh-huh. For sure, right? And one, super metal. So literally metal. So literally metal, <laughs> right? And also, it is, it's a demon that has been overlooking Malaz City ever since the beginning days of the Malazan Empire. If that's not a foreboding symbol, I don't know what is. Damn, that is a nice catch. I like it. I mean, when you read it five times over and over again, you're like, why is he starting with this wind vane? I had to read into that pretty deeply to be like, oh, it's, it's a demon that overlooks the city, and it was put there at the beginning of Kellenved's reign. That is a really good catch. 
I was kind of like, blah, blah, wind vane, blah, blah. Where's the dialogue? But that's the kind of reader that I am. <laughs> nice. Oh, you're smart. So let's talk about the dates here. We're in the 1154th year of Burns Sleep. And if you are on an e-reader or just haven't looked in the back of the book, there is a glossary. So I will periodically pull out things from the glossary that might be helpful. I was not aware of that. And there is. Okay, good to see. Um, so Burn, according to the glossary, is the lady of the earth. She's a sleeping goddess. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, a little I, on the nose. <laughs> well, I, I laugh because of one of my predictions. So Nice. Okay. So we'll get to that later. I love it. Um, so we're in the 96th year of the Malazan Empire, the last year of Emperor Kelenved's reign. And what's very significant about this is if you kind of read into the history a little bit, we will find out that Emperor Kelenved is the the person who began the Malazan Empire. Mm-hmm. So when we find out that it's 96 years into his reign. He's the one who began it. That tells us right away this is, it's a very long-lived race of people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also how new this empire is. You know, we're talking about countries where it seems like the empire's been there forever. But really, by the time even Lazine takes over, there have only been two rulers. Yeah, it's still a relatively young empire by by those standards. I, I did not catch that... It was his, like, he was the one who started it. It wasn't until we started talking about it and you were talking about there being a glossary that I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. So those are some extra details. So we have this young nobleman, Paran. He's in Mala's city. Um, How do you pronounce his name? Paran? No, Paran I got. Ganos? Ganos or Ganos. Okay, gotcha. So I, I've, I, we've, we've looked up as many pronunciation guides as we can. <laughs> There's nothing really comprehensive. So Theo said um, that he was going to pronounce it just like the word canoe, but with a G. So GNU. So I've started. I can't call him GNU. <laughs> so I've started calling him Gary GNU. <laughs> Which is a reference that I'm sure not that many people will get if you're not of our age and from the U.S. <laughs> that was a character on like a morning cartoon show, Gary Gnu. So he's Gary Gnu forever in my mind. In your mind. Well, according to the Malazan or the, the Malazan wiki, sorry, I'm still getting used to saying that, it's Ganos. Ganos, okay. But I mostly call him Paran because that's pretty much how he's referred um, so he, so Paran is here. He's in Malaz City. This used to be the capital of the empire, but now it's just a fist's hold. Paran is, he's a young kind of adolescent. This visiting the city is old hat to him. He's been here three times. Um, he's very interested in what's going on in the mouse quarter, and he's trying to catch a glimpse of the riots. He mentions that, that he sees the flash and thundering concussions of Majory making the air seem dark and heavy. So this is our first mention of magic in the series. And mm-hmm. we'll do a kind of a breakdown of what we learned about magic at the end, but we'll also kind of point out what we see about it here. And from there, we have this clanking soldier come along wearing armor, leans over the boy and says, glad for your pure blood, eh? 
and I'm like, what is it that gives it away? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it about uh, Perron that makes it obvious? I mean, maybe it's just that they knew his father was in town and they sort yeah. of assumed or, you know, was it his pale skin? Like his, you know, his manicured nails? Like, I don't know. But <laughs> there's something about him that gives it away. Right? Mm-hmm. I think it's known who he is. You know, we know that at the end of, of chapter one, when he comes face to face with Lazine again, she knew who he was on the parapet and she remembers him. Mm -hmm. So it may just be that, that this soldier just knows who he is. Yeah. Cause there's only one like kind of entitled, spoiled 13 year old running around. (laughs) (laughs) So how many of those are there? Uh, So the other thing is that uh, Peron recognizes the heraldry and says he's a commander in the third, but Mm -hmm. we don't really know what third, like third, Third company, third battalion, third right. division, third like we don't we don't really know. Um, and then I went back through the dramatis personae, and there's no reference to the third. There's a lot of reference to like this soldier's from the ninth squad of the second army, right? But never does the third ever come up, right? And but it doesn't really give you a comprehensive breakdown of the command structure. Yeah, it just mm-hmm. kind of gives you a couple of highlights. What's important to know about this soldier is that he's one of the bridge burners. Yeah. And that he was, notes um, that right away. So that's an did, elite yeah. bridge burner. Force. Yeah, that was my nickname. Was in, uh, <laughs> yeah, in, uh, in professional circles. Yeah. yeah. So it seems that the riots have something to do with some kind of ethnic strife that that Peron is protected from, either because of his class or just who he is. Um, and the soldier is is very irreverent towards him, though he's very mm-hmm. bitter. Um, it's quite an introduction to go up and just kind of, he kind of brushes him aside. And Peron asks him if it's true that Dasem Ultur, the first sword of empire, is dead. And he goes on to ask him all of these questions. Like, well, I thought the third was with him in the seven cities at Yagaten. And and this the soldier's like, what? He says, Hood's breath. They're still looking for his body in the still hot rubble of that damn city. And here you are, a merchant's son, 3,000 leagues from the seven cities, with information only a few are supposed to possess. Uh, He still didn't turn to face him. I know not your sources, but take my advice and keep what you know to yourself. Gano shrugged. It said he betrayed a god. I think that little exchange says a lot. It really does. And it, it gives us a picture of this boy as someone who is desperate to prove himself worthy and to be respected. The other thing I noted is, how does he know? Like, how? why is it that this 13-year-old kid knows something that only a few people do? Uh, it's He says that we learned about it before we left— so he he lives in, we know later, he grew up in Unta, mm-hmm. uh, and I checked it out on a map. Man, I got so many, I got so many maps of nice. the world of Malazan. So I checked it out on the map. He's, you know, he's a good sea's voyage away mm-hmm. from Malaz. I mean, it's not like, you know, months or anything, mm-hmm. but like, he must have known about it, you know, when it happened, mm-hmm. which, you know, as a child... The only thing I can imagine is that his father, who we have not met, must be exceedingly well plugged in. Well, we get another hint that that tells us that that's true in the interactions we see at the end of this section between Peron and his sister. And she is talking about how, um, what she's asking him when he comes back. And he says, well, I'm, 
I've got reassigned. And she's like, I would have known if you'd been reassigned here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and he's like, oh, right. My family knows everything. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. For sure. Yes. For sure. The, the other thing I noted is that it also means they never found his body. Indeed. And knowing looks are exchanged. I'm not that really. I, that came out way more knowing than it that it oh, okay. I meant right. it to. Okay. All right. Uh, also, when he says it said he betrayed a god, mm-hmm. now the soldier did sort of go, "How does this kid know it?" But he didn't deny it. Correct. At no point did he go, "What? That's ludicrous." Mm-hmm. What do you know, idiot? He didn't. You know, he didn't say anything like that. Right. Instead, he goes back and forth with the boy about the value and wisdom of becoming a soldier. Yeah. He is basically like thumbs down to the military experience. <laughs> but the boy wants to be a hero. Yeah, and multiple times, like, you know, the soldier is sort of lecturing him, listen, I- I've been doing this for a long time. All my friends are dead. I'm telling you, yeah. it's a bad idea. And multiple sentences, it says, Gano's shrugged. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he does a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of shrugging. As a parent of teenagers, (laughs) I can attest (laughs) to the realism of the excessive shrugging. Uh. So uh, they're standing there. Another soldier arrives. Mm -hmm. He shows up. He's got a broken fiddle on his back. Mm -hmm. His name is Dave. (laughs) (laughs) No, obviously, he's a character from the Dramatis Personae named Fiddler. Right. Can I just say, the names in this book, like, so I've decided, well, they're amazing. My new goal in life is to get Steven Erickson to give me a nickname. (laughs) You're going right to the top, right? I'm just saying. If Flash didn't stick. If you know me at all, you know that my one ambition in life has always been to get a cool nickname, and I just can't ever get one. I've, I've been, tried I've tried nicknaming myself. It didn't work. I've been trying for the last three years to give you a really kick-ass nickname. Which is? The Duchess. Yeah, some bitch named Megan already took that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It sucks. But I want a kick-ass nickname, and I think Steven Erickson might be the one to give might it to me. He, he, so, the names are awesome. Step one, find Steven Erickson. <laughs> <laughs> step two... Question mark. <laughs> Step three, get a kick-ass nickname. <laughs> I know That's where all I'm, I've got so far. I know where I'm starting. I know where I want to end. <laughs> Step four, profit. <laughs> I don't know. Dominate. Yeah, so, so Dave shows up. He's super young. He's like 14, 15 years old. Uh, despite acting, he acts and talks like a grizzled veteran, right. right? But the other thing I noticed is he is super poorly equipped. Mm-hmm. Like the clothing is like rotting off of him. His scabbard mm-hmm. is cracked. That means his sword's going to rust. So they recruit children. Not only do they recruit children, but at a young enough age for this 15 year old to be, to be a veteran. Mm-hmm. And then they don't even equip them well. So this is not a noble army. <laughs> like, you are definitely correct in that assertion. I would also say that it's very telling about what the the person currently in power thinks of the bridge burners. So they're mm-hmm. an elite of the emperor's army. But we find out in this section that the emperor has been away and that his highest sort of official, Surly, has been in charge. 
Surly does not like the bridge burners. In this section, this this soldier sends Fiddler off. I don't even know if Fiddler is named, but that we know who that's. Uh, no, yeah, it's so not named. So he yeah. sends him off with directions to give to Dujek, who is mm-hmm. obviously an underling. When we kind of hear about this unit again, or we hear about this any of these names again, Dujek is named as a high fist. So obviously, mm. Lazine, who does not like these soldiers, as evidence in this prologue, yeah. has promoted Dujek, and these guys are kind of out. So I think that the the battered, noticing that kind of battered equipment was a really good catch. And I think it's also very telling of what, you know, how high this group is in Surly's esteem. Yeah. Another thing we learn is that Lacine has changed her name, or Surly has changed her name to Lacine, which is Napan, Napan, mm-hmm. Napan, sure. Napan for the word throne master. It's, I mean, Again, you know, if you're going to assassinate herself, the emperor, <laughs> she gave herself a pretty kick-ass she, nickname. She did what? give herself a kick-ass nickname. Also, Napan is apparently a language and country or region, and people from Napan uh, are blue. They're blue. So we also learn in this conversation with Fiddler what's going on down in the city. He lets us know that the cadre of mages who is in charge is new. And they were sent out to sniff out a few wax witches, but they panicked. And basically, it's all gone to shit. But he and the commander speculate about whether this was done sort of purposefully uh, because they don't trust the person who is in command, who is Surly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who has now changed her name to Lazine. And that's the conversation that they have about that. And speak of the devil, who should show up but Lazine herself? She's accompanied by members of the Claw. The Claw. I mean, come on. I'm going to give you the Claw. If you're going to start a warrior cult to be your personal bodyguards you got to call them the claw you have to i'm like sure. really I mean, mad that that's taken well and the two positions that we've heard of so far well well two of the things we've heard of so far are the fist yeah it's a fist holding yes and the claw so it's yes. fists and claws yes sharks and jets and <laughs> so the commander doesn't like her and it's pretty mutual and he pretty much out and out accuses her of making a grab for power while the emperor is out. Yeah, and then he says he remembers when she was nothing more than a serving wench in the old quarter. Oh, burn! And I'm like, who the hell do you think you are? Sisters are doing it for themselves. Let's get let's get on the respect train. <laughs> no, with your shitty armor. <laughs> he's not. Win- I'm just saying he's not winning over any readers. <laughs> So Lazine has made laws against sorcery. The commander is telling her, yeah, have fun with that until the emperor gets back. And then that's going to go away. He thinks, obviously thinks this is a mistake. Also, he thinks that this is going to improve, that the emperor is coming back and he's going to set things to right, which we find out very soon is not what happens. It is. And I love the way that the foreshadowing comes into play so quickly. So we have this poem that tells us, the emperor is dead, so too his right hand. And we open up on us finding out that the right hand is dead. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. know, And they're talking, I love that. They, they're talking about the emperor coming back, but we know that that's not going to that happen. That is not going to yeah. happen. For sure. So after this whole thing, they're bitching each other, and she's telling him, you don't know what you're doing, and he's telling, you know, 
all of this tension, this obvious, obvious tension, the first thing that happens afterwards is Ganoz says, one day I'll be a soldier. <laughs> like, he has no understanding of what just happened. He uh, cannot read the room. He cannot read the room, and that is definitely part of this character, for sure. For sure. He is so full of himself. I wonder if that'll carry over to the next chapter. I don't. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a kid who is desperate to be respected. He's over being a kid. Yeah. God, as a parent of teenagers, I just feel like some of this stuff could have happened at our dinner table. You know, and you're yeah. you're going back and forth with a kid, and they they just, they kind of browbeat you with their teenagerness until you're mm. just like, whatever. And yeah. then they're like, yes. <laughs> I've won. And you're like, okay, sure. I've annoyed you into submission. <laughs> said, that's exactly what happens here. <laughs> and he's like, ha ha, even a young boy can make a good point. You know, and you're like, like yeah, yeah, okay, okay. whatever, <laughs> whatever, dummy. So there are two, there are two things I wish I knew more about mm-hmm. coming out of this, as it relates to Gnos, because we're talking about him now. We'll talk about some of the other characters in a second. So the first is why, why is it that he knows about Decim Ultor when nobody else seems to, mm-hmm. right? So that's the first one. I mean, we kind of speculated, but I wish I knew why. And the other one is he, he's pretty disrespectful to his father. Mm. And I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Is it typical teenage? Well, he's nothing special. He's my right. dad. Right. Because he's, you know, um, no prophets are respected in their hometown sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or does his dad a great A. Peckerwood? Like, <laughs> you know. And we just, we don't know yet. Sorry. That... <laughs> it caught you? It did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those are some good questions. The end of this chapter for me and it took me a couple times reading through before I, I kind of caught the implications, but at the end, um, Genos notices a sweet smell yeah, coming up, yeah, and he yeah. says, oh, an abattoir of pigs must have caught fire. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And the captain just says, as you say, boy. Yeah, sure. As you say. Yeah. And it's just like, ugh, because obviously it's not pigs yeah, yeah. that are it's burning. Sheep. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, and it just highlights the interaction that just happened Uh, here. You know, this boy who is call a lampshade. So naive. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and so thinks he knows what it's all about to be a soldier, and it just so perfectly sets up the exploration that's going to happen in this book. And one of the main themes is the cost of war, both on the individual and you know the societal level. Yeah. And so giving us a picture of Peran as this absolute naive innocent, and then we get to watch his journey through, uh, you know, becoming a man, becoming a soldier, it just it sets it up so brilliantly. I think it does as well. I love it. So, so my next character is the dude in the grizzled armor. Yeah. I'm calling him Sunshine Sandor. Nice. Because he's, <laughs> he's like Sandor Clegane if S- Sandor Clegane was on MDMA. He's like... <laughs> He's just kind of bright and sunshiny in comparison, right? Right. You know, but he's even got the scarred face and Mm -hmm. and all of that, too. I really, at the end, I have a prediction about who he is. I'm pretty confident, but it's not not really revealed. Mm -hmm. But I, from context clues, I think I know who he is. Okay. Well, you did read the Dramatis Personae. Uh, Many times, many times. And then we have Surly Lacine. So what we find out about her is she's blue. 
Uh, sisters are doing it for themselves. She comes from humble roots. Uh, she's leading a cult. She doesn't like Sandor, uh, the guy in the clanking armor. I think that beneath those long, dark, opaque robes, um, she's wearing Crocs. That's just my take. <laughs> I would join her cult. I'm a joiner. Oh, yeah? I mean, I've taken jobs just to use the bathroom. <laughs> like, the bathroom is for employees. And I'm like, <laughs> Lacine is the one true empress. <laughs> All right, so moving on to chapter one. Man, we're only now getting the first chapter. (laughs) I looked down. I was on the first page of chapter one. I had already taken like 12 pages of notes. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to need a bigger notebook. (laughs) Yeah, this this has exhausted my note-taking as well. I love it. I'm glad we only did one chapter in the prologue. I got the full-on note-taking tingles out of this book, <laughs> for sure. But yes, it's going to be a, a two-chapter per episode. Yeah. All right, chapter one. So chapter one, we've got two snapters. I'm not going to read them both, but I do want to break down what do we learn mm-hmm. from the snapters. The first one seems like it's been taken from a history book written yeah. by mm-hmm. Emergen Talibant. Emregan Talobant. Schnappern <laughs> Taliban. Anyway, it's a book about the Imperial Campaigns, Volume 4, Genabacus. Anyway, it tells us that in the eighth year, the free cities of Genabacus hired some mercenaries to fight the emperor, basically. So Genabacus is a different continent from the, the original empire. And it's the map, the only map, by the way, we get in the beginning of the book. Yes, because that's kind of where everything, all the action takes place on this one continent. But the, the emperor has been trying to take over this continent. And this year, the free cities have hired some mercenaries. They've hired the Crimson Guard, which is headed up by Prince Kaz Davor. And they've also hired the Teast Andi Regiment of Moon Spawn, headed up by Caladan Brood. Now, those are a couple of names. You're laughing. Caladan Brood. I mean, that's an awesome name. That's name. So metal. We just came out of a book where one of the main characters' name was Caladan. Right. And he was super brooding. Yeah, it's true. So it's going to be really hard for me not to. To think of them the same, but this guy <laughs> seems straight out the straight out the gates like he's not fucking around. Like, no, my yeah. name is Caladan Brood, and I am here to fuck shit up. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I mean, do you have any other choice when your name is Caladan Brood? You have to fuck and shit he up. Punched his way out of his mother. You can't be. <laughs> I'm Caladan Brood, and I'm here to knit some tea cozies. <laughs> right. It just doesn't work. No, no. But a couple of these. Names and words are in the glossary. The Teast and D are a non-human elder race. They're sorceress, so they're, you know, magical. Caladan Brood is listed on, there's a list of, of people called Ascendants. Caladan mm, okay. Brood is listed as the warrior Ascendant. So that's what we know about him. Sounds pretty badass. Totally badass. We also, the second thing we learned from this snapter is that the Moranth Alliance of 1156 marked a fundamental change in the science of warfare for the Malazan Imperium. So the Moranth, according to the glossary, are a highly regimented civilization 
centered in the cloud forest. In the cloud forest? Yes. You don't say. That's probably not that important. But so what we've got here is so this and I'm going to post this on the website. I broke it down into a timeline because I I couldn't find that anywhere on the web. I was looking yeah. for a timeline of actually the history of the empire. So I wrote one out that's going to be not spoilery for people who are Sweet. only just reading this book. But what we've basically got is in 1058 the Malazan Empire begins. In 1152-ish the Genabacus campaign begins. And so this has obviously been a very bitter campaign. In 1154, Emperor Kellenved is killed and Lazine's rule begins. In 1156, she makes a, an alliance with the Moranth, who is this kind of like, I, I picture them as like the Spartans mm-hmm, of, okay. of this world. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, and that really kind of changed the way the army was starting to work. In 1161, that's where we're at right now. Mm-hmm, okay. The other the beginning thing we, of chapter one. Yeah, the other nugget that we get here is the reference to Hyphus Dujek, which you mentioned before as well, because as we said in the prologue, he was a lower ranking officer. Now he's a Hyphist. Yes. So so he's been promoted. And um, we also find out that the involvement of the Tist Andi, as we know, so in the eighth year they've they they bring the Tist Andi into it. Um, and that led to the, the sorcery enfilade. Now I had to get out the dictionary <laughs> because I had never heard that word before. Enfilade? Yeah. Enfilade. Um, according to the dictionary, that's how you say it. Oh, okay. An enfilade is a volley of gunfire directed along a line from end to end. So the, uh, a sorceress enfilade is, is a bad thing. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's sounding like. Sounds like it would be bad. This snapter also tells us that in the year of burned sleep 1163, the Siege of Pale ended with a now legendary sorceress conflagration. So what we know about magic so far is explosions. Explody <laughs> magic. It's very I love explody magic. It's very explody. That's I, what we know about the magic system so I just far. want frickin' fireballs. <laughs> I want mages with frickin' fireballs. Coming out of their hands. It's what it sounds like you're going to get. <laughs> I am. It's very exciting when I when I know that. And right off the bat. So again, like you said, right off the bat, we're we're having foreshadowing of, of basically things we know are going to happen, you know, and then things start setting up in future chapters where their characters are, are ending up in places where we know there's going to be a conflagration already. Yeah. I mean, he's it seems like he's trying to do everything he can to give us the background information in the least uh, info dump way possible, Mm -hmm. but kind of can't really avoid dumping a lot of info on you. Right. Well, and, and again, this is like you could, and I certainly did the first and second time, kind of go through this and just skim these little snapters. But it's so much more impactful when you read them and you're like, oh, hey, 1163, that's, you know, two years from now. Like, mm-hmm. like, like that's the events of this book. Yeah, um, yeah. So we know it's going to end up with some fucking fireballs. And you're like, <laughs> I'm stoked. <laughs> also, I love that I'm on page 10 of this book and I've had to break out a dictionary already. <laughs> it's just my kind of book. It's dense. That's for sure. Moving into chapter one. Chapter one. 45 minutes into the podcast. (laughs) It's a long summary. Are you ready? I got to work on my breathing. (sighs) Okay, so chapter one, the summary. The story begins. 
A young fisher girl and an old wax witch named Riga are watching the glorious Imperial Army pass by. The girl is amazed by all the shiny. Riga, not so much. Riga speaks a prophecy over the girl, foretelling darkness, war, and the bonding of their two souls. Before the fisher girl has a chance to say, What? Riga is killed by a passing soldier, and she lodges herself in the fisher girl's mind like a stone. Moments later, the girl is approached by two men and a bunch of supernatural hounds. These guys have otherworldly powers and a bone to pick with the Empress Lazine. They apologize for making the fisher girl a pawn right before her mind is engulfed in shadows. Again. They even name her Sorry. <laughs> Meanwhile, young Ganos Paran from the prologue has grown up, somewhat, and joined the Imperial Army. He's inspecting the scene of a massacre, which we know was caused by the shadow hounds we just saw. Paran doesn't know shit, however, and neither does the adjunct to the Empress, Lorne, who is in town to investigate. Lorne is the Empress's mage killer, and she's on to those shadowy bastards who possess Sari. She attempts to track Sari down, but the girl slips through Imperial hands, joining the Marines and requesting a spot in One Arm's host on Genabacus. Lorne sends Topper, a Teast and D claw, to bring Paran to the capital city of Unta. There, he meets the Empress and is told to await reassignment. He visits his sisters while he awaits his new orders, wondering how Lorne is going to track down the sorceress assassin and what part will be his to play. Man. Who? That's a summary. That's a summary. All right, so we begin with Riga. Start with Riga, Riga, lie the seer. I love that part. I do too. I love it. So we have a couple of paragraphs of sort of setting the stage, and then out of nowhere, we get Riga's hand shot out and snagged the girl's thick black hair, yanked it hard. And they were having a nice conversation up to that. Right? Like, what the fuck, Riga? I mean, weird, <laughs> but nice, you know? Yeah. So that came out of nowhere. <laughs> Mock this truth, child, else the cloak of lies blind you forever. I was just here for the twine. <laughs> That's a good Riga voice. Riga's voice took on the droning cadence, and all at once the girl stiffened. Riga, Rigalai the seer, the wax witch who trapped souls in candles and burned them. Souls devoured in flame. Riga's words carried the chilling tone of prophecy. Mock this truth. I am the last to speak to you. You are the last to hear me. Thus we are linked, you and I, beyond all else. Riga's fingers snagged tighter in the girl's hair. Across the sea, the Empress has driven her knife into virgin soil. The blood will now come in a tide, and it'll sweep you under, child, if you're not careful. They'll put a sword in your hand. They'll give you a fine horse, and they'll send you across that sea. But a shadow will embrace your soul. Now listen, bury this deep. Riga will preserve you because we are linked, you and I. Make sure you do the dishes. I like my tea. Hot, but not too hot. <laughs> But that is all, do you understand? <laughs> Look to the Lord who spawned in darkness. His is the hand that shall free you, though he'll not know it. And so we start with this young fisher girl being essentially possessed by the soul of an old witch. This is the very first significant thing, and it seems like this witch doesn't really like the empress. She does not like her. And it, this is like... Such a such a metal scene. It's such a oh my god. It's it really is something that grabs you. Well, I like also the contrast between we have the prologue sitting on this like old 
hold mm-hmm. fast overlooking this huge city, its royalty and this commander and and now we go to like this backwater like old hag and random village fisher girl one it's got a very fairy tale sort of theme to it but mm-hmm. it's also a huge leap you know from from a setting standpoint where we were before well let's talk about the setting for a minute they're in a country called itko khan uh, this is not a country that's on genabacus but it's a country that's been part of the emperor empire for so long that most people can't remember a time before the empire. Mm-hmm. Now, not Riga. She remembers. She's old as shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but most people don't even remember a time before it. And and one thing that Riga says to the girl, as the girl is like, she's just, you know, entranced by the soldiers. It's like all these hot dudes are riding by in their mm-hmm. armor. And, and Riga tells her, I, there was a time when we were free. Riga has lost two sons and three husbands. Yeah to the Empire's Wars. And she's just had it. She's a wax witch. And she, what we find out later is that that's a, a form of necromancy. And she can, she's basically trapped the souls of her husbands and her sons in candles. And I guess she, she can talk to them when she burns them. Seems like it, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying it's an option. <laughs> when you go, I'll just pop you in this little candle, baby. I'm down. I mean... <laughs> Listen, we all know I'm going first, so whatever you got to do. <laughs> How was your day, dear? Well, I'm a candle, so <laughs> not great. <laughs> it's kind of boring. <laughs> Could you put the TV on for me next time? You think? I love the introduction to magic here. It's such a, a unique kind of flavor to it. Really dark. Yeah. I really love it. And I love the contrast between Riga and the Fisher Girl. The Fisher Girl is like, oh, my dad needs some twine for his nets, and we <laughs> lost the net, and he's going to, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's just very much this kind of caricature of... of Youth and innocence th- yes, and naivete. A poor yeah. little peasant girl, and her father has mm-hmm. one arm, so she's got to help him with the nets. And I mean, she's straight out of Little House on the Prairie. Absolutely. So we know her father's in debt, so he's got to get the, a new catch in. And I think it's also significant that at no point do we, I mean, maybe we do later, but we never learn this girl's name. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's like so significant. It's like her person and personality is completely irrelevant. We get possessed by two different supernatural entities <laughs> in the space of an hour. Like how much yeah. of your personality is going to hold on? Yeah, probably not a lot. So Riga drops this prophecy, and then a passing soldier just fucking kills her. Yeah. It's like, stay away from the pretty one. I'm a pedophile. Pop. <laughs> but then he doesn't like he's he doesn't do it to like get Sari's attention. He 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 no, just just whacks yeah. her with his fist and How doesn't dare even you be old like ugly. tried to talk. Exactly. <laughs> it, just, it just keeps going. He just keeps going, and it's such a like a a stark portrait of what this society is like. Absolutely, you know. Um, if you're a soldier, you can just kill an old lady on the side of the road and keep riding. With righteous indignation. <laughs> That's right. Why are you harassing that young girl? <laughs> Dead. Could have been her mother, for all he knows. Could have been <laughs> her grandmother. He okay. has no clue. Yeah, I mean, so that's definitely something that we see as a consistency, is just the callousness mm. that, that happens when when men are exposed to war, men or women. 
So we're still kind of processing this. As a reader, you're like, oh, my God, he just freaking killed her, and she's laying there dead. And then these other two men come up. Well, so right before that happens, so something significant happens before the other two men appear. Okay. Is... So the girl is sitting there with the dead woman across her knees, and she's like, ah, you know, as you would be. Right. Um, you know, blood splatters on her. And right. she's like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on? You know, and then this voice comes on and says, never mind the candles. She mumbled in a thick, odd voice. They're gone, aren't they? Just scattering of bones, never mind. And that's when you get this indication that, like, Riga has just moved into the girl right and it's you know and they're fighting for who's gonna actually Mm -hmm. share the mic time i guess yes and so she we watch this girl switch back and forth between these Mm -hmm. two personalities it's super creepy and 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 entrancing at the same time and then right before the other two show up it says an unseasonal chill bled from the shadows which now flowed like water across the road Mm. here it comes then the girl grated softly. So Riga knows. Yes. A soft-gloved hand fell on her shoulder. She ducked down, cowering. Easy, girl, said a man. It's over. Nothing to be done for her now. And that's when they show up. But it's noted to me that this is, like, Riga knew this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's supposed to be this wax witch. They talk about it being sort of this low-level, right. minor thing that why would you concern yourself with but Riga seems to know what the hell's going on more than anybody else does. She does. And in the conversation that follows, we see that, that these two obviously kind of higher level uh, magical people, mm-hmm. beings, are very dismissive of her form of magic. At the same time, they don't know what's even just happened here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so these two guys show up. We find out soon they are Amanas and Cotillion. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, those are such great names. They are great names. Although I have to say, I was constantly getting them confused as yes, to who which was, was who which, right? And which was which was which exactly? I made a little chart. <laughs> of course, you did. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> so they show up uh, in the conversation. She, you know, they tell her that they're gods. We don't really know, but what we do know is that they pop out of nowhere from a cold wind they're mm-hmm. like demons or shapeshifters or we don't know what they are but they're clearly fucking badass and powerful right and pretty much the first thing they do is um kind of bag on the dead woman the dead <laughs> wax witch. Right. Yeah. or at least amanas does he's kind of like Wow, she was pathetic. What a loser. <laughs> it's, it's the mean girls of it wizardry. Really is. Like, and uh, Riga doesn't like that, you know. So that again, we see this yeah. this girl kind of switch back and forth, but she's she's too smart to reveal what's going herself. Um, so when he he says something disparaging about Riga, and and the girl sits up and, and kind of spits on the road, and then. Um, Anytime they kind of look at her sharply, she's like, oh, no, I'm just a little fisher girl. Don't mind me, you know? So it's very cl- she's very clever about what she does. This part really got to me. Yeah, he's he's talking about, so if you hadn't figured out before, Amanas kind of, kind of lays it out there for you. Oh, the, the candles were for necromancy. She had five frail souls trapped in them. Mm-hmm. I can hear them calling for her. And it says a wordless anguish seemed to well up from the black stone in her mind. 
I don't know why that just like really, really stuck with me. So here's this young girl who's like just going to be grieving for these five family members that Riga has lost. Mm-hmm. She doesn't even know them, yeah. And that she doesn't even know. Also, it shows you that Riga, wh- you know, whatever it is, we don't really understand it, but it's something that's causing her grief to have to let go. She sacrificed yes. to to make this transition. Yes. Yeah, she's not going to be able to go ar- be running around burning her dead husbands and the candles anymore. Yeah. So we have uh, Amanus and Cotillion, and Amanus calls up these hounds and sends them after the army. So this is the part I told you I was going to point out to you that we are in the we are now in the seventh year oh, of okay. Lezine's reign, and there are seven hounds. Oh, okay, all right. So I am assuming their eyes are obsidian. I, I'm think well, the the hounds' eyes are yellow, but I, oh. I have a feeling Amanus's <laughs> eyes are probably obsidian. Okay, so all right, okay, okay. That's what I I think was was foreshadowed in that little poem we first read okay all right amanis calls up these hounds and sends them off now amanis is kind of a giggler he's definitely your um your kind of textbook insane baddie yeah really really does not neither of them like lazine but amanis sort of has this this giant hatred hard on for her also like several times he's like can we kill her now yeah can we just kill this girl let's just kill this girl we're gonna kill her right what about her dad let's (laughs) just get we can kill him right (laughs) (laughs) yes cotillion is kind of a contrast he's sort of like the he's sort of the reluctant villain the the kind villain i'm gonna possess you but i'm gonna feel really bad about it yeah and then literally name you sorry yeah (laughs) i feel so bad about it feel so bad for what i just did to you (laughs) so it's a neat contrast between the two of them and other than them possessing her we don't really know what they want with her they say no she'll she'll do she's perfect but we don't really know what they're up to. It seems like they're trying to turn her into an assassin, somebody who will not get, you know, somebody who will be able to get close to the the empress, mm-hmm. you know, sort of without suspicion because she's just a little girl, mm-hmm. you know. I question whether that's really what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you, Amanus and Cotillion are both mentioned in the glossary. Aha, I did not know that. They're also mentioned in the Dramatis Personae. Yes. Which, that was, that part I, I knew, but I, again, I was not aware there was a glossary. I feel cheated. It's probably, well, it's probably the same information, but Amanus is also called Shadow Throne, and he is the, on the list of ascendants. Mm, okay. So, same as Caladan Brood was the, was an ascendant called the Warlord. Mm-hmm. He is an ascendant called the King of High House Shadow. Cotillion, also called the Rope, mm-hmm. is on the list of ascendants, and he is called the Assassin of High House Shadow. So, mm. just tidbits, kind of stew on. So, Cotillion is the Assassin, and Amanus is the the High King of something called High House Shadow. Now, isn't Cotillion who's the one with the hounds? It was Amanus. Amanus was the one, the shorter one, who called up the hounds. Cotillion was the one who chose Sari. It's interesting because he defers to Cotillion, even though it says in there that he's the king. It is interesting, the, the interaction between them. And Amanus seems a little more than 
than mad. He definitely does not act like a king towards Cotillion. No. Um, hmm. In fact, Cotillion at, at one point kind of calls Amanus out on underestimating Lazine because Amanus keeps saying, "I her, we need to be part of her downfall. She's she's going to her downfall is going to happen without us, you know, because she's he says that she's raised the ire of the moon spawn." Mhm. Which we've referenced already. We have referenced. And Cotillion says, "Well, you've underestimated her before, and that's why we're in the situation we're in." Apparently, Lazine uh, dealt them a blow and caused them pain. Whatever that is. We also know that they're they're afraid of being discovered by her. They're not supposed to be here. No. And they're afraid that someone is going to find out that they were. Says, you see, lass, Amanus added, suppressing a giggle. We're not supposed to be here. There are names, and then there are names. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to be here. Like, as in, on this side of the mortal plane... Confess, zombies, confess. <laughs> right. No, I, I, but the names I thought was interesting, given so many other books we've read where names right. are so relevant. Right. So I think this is one of the, probably the more relevant things they say in their discussion. This is, uh, I can't tell if it's a, uh, Amanus or Cotillion speaking, but anyway, they say, she's ideal. The emperors could never track her down, could never even so much as guess, he raised his voice. It's not so bad a thing, lass, to be the pawn of a god. And I love the, um, you know, he's so sure of himself, at least when it comes to to Sari. He's so sure of his mastery over her. And as soon as he says that, the girl mutters, prod and pull, which is what the thing that Riga was mentioning. So mm-hmm. you're just reminded that, like, here he is, he's so sure of himself, but he has no idea what he's actually getting into. Well, and there's also a couple of times where, like, you can tell that they're like, huh, what? Like, mm-hmm. they can tell something strange, but they're, I guess in their just, you know, hubris, they're just like, mm-hmm. oh, whatever, we're we're gods. Yeah. We can do whatever we want. Nobody, no wax witch could potentially foil us. It, it is, it, it, it's such a, sa- it makes that interaction so satisfying. It does. Man, this part of the chapter is thick with meaning. Every, Every word. sentence. It's like the Kim Kardashian of meaning. <laughs> True. So now we're like 13 pages in. <laughs> <laughs> now we get to talk to uh, Gary Ganu at the beach. That's right. So we meet adjunct Lorne, who is the personal servant to the Empress. She's in the country. She's looking for something. And she's here in response to a massacre that's happened. We know who sent or what, what was responsible for the massacre, mm-hmm. but nobody else knows. So she's riding, she's with this captain, this local captain, and he's taking her to the scene of the crime. And they're talking, and we get some little tidbits out of their conversation just about what the Empire is like and what it's like serving in the Empire. Yeah. So he tells her that he's been here for 13 years, so that's since the Emperor's time. Mm -hmm. And she says, oh, you survived the purge, which, number one, tells her he's not a noble because, you know— Lazine did a pretty good job of clearing house, it sounds like. And he says, well, um, he says, the people of this country, they're not excitable. He's like, none of the riots or mass executions mm-hmm. that happened, we just all kind of put our heads down. So that tells us that when Lazine came in, she took over, she really cleaned things out. There was a purge of some kind, which is somewhat puzzling because uh, Peron is a noble house, mm-hmm. and obviously they haven't been touched. Right. So it wasn't like 
They killed every noble. Right. So we don't know the details of why or, or what happened, but right. but it's it's a peculiar statement when we you must not have been noble born, mm-hmm. but we know the character Ganos Peron is noble born. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? There's obviously more context here. Yeah, obviously we don't, we don't know. know what, and we know that uh, Peron's father was there at the keep with Lazine. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right before she took over, so so that definitely gives us an indication that Peron's father is a, a mover and a shaker, and obviously he manipulated his family to safety. Seems like it, yeah. Uh, you know, when the new regime took over. Also, what what do you have to do to become the adjunct to the empress? You have to be a scorpion in the pocket. You have in to the be, imperial pocket. Right? What does that job interview look like? <laughs> so, first question. Will you cut a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you're hired. <laughs> you're, <laughs> no, I, I have another question. Too. So we go on. Uh, we're looking at this from the captain's view, and the captain says, her hair was either cut short or drawn up under her helm. Her figure was live enough, the captain mused. Finished, she asked. <laughs> so next interview question. Do you wish a motherfucker would? <laughs> I wish a motherfucker would. Bonus 10 points. <laughs> I wish a motherfucker would. So accurate. <laughs> she is uh she is not fucking around. She is not fucking around. I I kind of love it. So they've they've shut down traffic to keep word from spreading of this massacre. It's huge spread out over over leagues. Um, and there's such a beautiful buildup to the massacre. And that's, that sounds weird, but, (laughs) (laughs) but the tension is just crafted as she's, as she's riding up to the crest of the hill. Well, you get to experience, yeah, yeah, her first exposure to it. Well, and she's watching the faces of the men who have already seen what happened. And they're like, you know, hardened soldiers who are just royally freaked out. And she's kind of getting more and more freaked out. And then when she goes up, you know, then, so you feel your tension rising as she finally then sees just this field of, of massacred bodies. They're just pulped. So I noticed, I don't know how important it is, but I noticed something that caught my attention in that exchange. So as she's seeing the hardened soldiers, um, she thinks, She fought the urge to speak to them as she passed, to offer whatever comforting words she could. Such gifts were not hers to give, however, nor had they ever been. In this, she was much the same as the Empress. What? Like, how is it that the Empress is not able to give comforting words? How is it that comforting words are not the Empress's to give? Is she not the Empress? Is she not fully in control? Or are you telling me that there's more going on with the Empress than we realized? Like, why would the Empress not have the right to give words of comfort? Like, it's such a—it it seems like such a throwaway statement, but if I take it literally, it could be really, really powerful. What does it mean? No, I think it's a very significant statement, and I think it's an indication of what kind of empire we have here. Yeah. And this empire is greater than any one person. And there's a a really great, great quote a little bit 
further down the line where Topper is talking to to Paran that that I'll read later. But it basically is like this empire is a machine, and and the Empress is part of the machine as well. And basically, you're part of it or you're not. You're mm-hmm. part of it or you're ground to dust. And so it, it is not the leadership's job to make anyone feel comfortable. It is their job to make sure that they obey and that they do their part. That's not a commentary on what I think leadership should be, but just Mm -hmm. in this world, that's the way that this empire works. Mm. So yeah, I think that that little comment is very significant in in what it tells us about the kind of world that we're dealing with. Yeah. So in the last section, we we saw the hellhounds be unleashed, but now we get to see what it actually looks like. Oh, they and, fuck shit up. Right? So these guys were willing to sell, send these hellhounds to kill 400 people mm-hmm. as a way of distracting from their possession of a single little girl. Mm-hmm. That, as it says in the Bible, is a dick move. <laughs> <laughs> so Super dick move. Super dick move. <laughs> So, they, you know, they go on through this whole section sort of talking about this, and it just becomes more and more clear to me, based on how unusual this is, mm-hmm. that rather than distracting and hiding, it seems more to have put a spotlight on it. Mm-hmm. It seems to have done the opposite of what they intended. Mm-hmm. And again, you look back on the interaction where that happened, and you wonder if... If Cotillion had been in charge, would he have sent the hounds? Or it, you just you have this this kind of back and forth between the two of them. Amanus mm-hmm. was the one who sent the hounds, and he just wants to hurt. And mm-hmm. he doesn't seem like a like a very measured no. planner. Doesn't doesn't appear to be. Um, at, at the same time, it's it, it gives us a picture of of another part of magical abilities in this world. Mm-hmm. So all of this is before Lorne actually even meets Geno. So we haven't even yes. seen Geno's in this so, section. So, yeah, at this point, um, she's like, oh, who's that hot guy over there? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so the captain says, um, Peron from House Peron. Aye, gold in his veins and all that. You know, and Lauren says, for all that, it was an easy face to rest his eye- her eyes upon. It's like, oh. <laughs> and he's tall, too. Like, <laughs> So yes, uh, Genos Peron uh, is has grown up to become a lieutenant in the Imperial Army. Now I think it's significant to note that you know we've talked about the purges and the nobility and the position of the nobility here. Mm-hmm. Peron has joined the military kind of against, well, definitely against his family's wishes, yeah, but also uh, kind of against societal protocols. We find out that the first emperor put down the nobility and like you didn't seek to rise through the army if you were a noble. Lazine has seems to have different priorities, we're told. And well, that's so, what he says. Yeah. Yes. So so some of the nobility are kind of starting to uh, work their way up, but it's a controversial thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very end of this section where we last see the captain, Lauren asks him, you know, what are your views on the inroads that the nobility is taking as as far as getting into the army? It took me a while to understand that because the way the conversation sort of lays out to me is she's like, oh, I'm just, you know, curious about you. And he's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm going to get commissioned in Nunta in the Mm -hmm. capital. And she's like, 
really he's like oh i have my ways and she's like how dare you i will fuck you up like uh-huh. and like i'm like whoa how does she go uh-huh. there that quick but uh-huh. it's, i had to read it several times to realize that he's essentially saying to her mm-hmm. uh even though you're supposed to be you know the empress and mm-hmm. the the right hand of the empress and in charge of everything i'm telling you where i'm going to get stationed mm-hmm. because i'm a noble and i have inroads that you don't know about Mm -hmm. and and that and it took me a while to sort of pick up on that's where the tension's coming from Mm -hmm. yeah because she says are you that confident of your blood's invincibility and i wrote next interview question will a bitch take it too far (laughs) because at that point i hadn't realized why that statement was such an affront right right so Peron's not a people person. No. Let's just say. He's not he's particularly not wise. He's not winning friends or influencing anybody. No. He's just kind of galloping around, being tall and handsome, <laughs> but not necessarily a bad guy. You don't, like, hate this character. No. No, he just, he's, I was going to say this later, but I'll say it now. I get a very Ned Stark vibe from the guy. I was going to say Luke Skywalker, but yeah, yeah same yeah. like... Not not from a, oh, Ned so noble standpoint, right. but from a Ned didn't know, he had no awareness mm-hmm. of just how in over his head he was. Yeah. There was one other, I did, I did come across one other, I think, important symbolic mm-hmm. thing, and that is he says to her, you know, in their sort of little back and forth, he says, do you know what these birds are doing here? Precisely. They're tearing off strips of meat and fighting over them. They're getting fat on eyeballs and tongues, livers and hearts. And their friend agreed, they fling the meat about. And later, we see that like the symbol for the Malazan Empire is like the talon of a bird. Mm -hmm. And I just can't help but feel like that this Mm. symbol of these birds fighting over these meat, literally the people, Mm. is just a sort of symbol for the whole, you know, conflagration that's going on between, Mm. you know, as the empire just goes and consumes smaller and smaller kingdoms. It can't help but be a symbol, right? Yeah, that's a really good call. Um, and, you know, it talks, when when we open this chapter, Riga is talking about how the Empire grinds people down, grinds them yeah. into bones. And this is a really powerful symbol of that. So they have this tense back and forth, right? And Peron does not really control his emotions. He, he, he gets pretty hot. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, she's like, you're young. He's like, I never been young you know like he's angry right <laughs> so this this blow up right and this is what goes on in Lorne's head this is from her perspective uh, they're walking around now mm-hmm. Lorne followed her thoughtful expression holding on to the lieutenant's broad back now we already know that she said oh he's got a nice face to look upon and mm-hmm. this might really not mean anything mm-hmm. but it could also mean that in this moment of his like really like intense trauma, mm-hmm. she's focused on objectifying him. Yeah. Does it, I mean, it might be nothing mm-hmm. or it may speak to a very significant lack of sympathy. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and right after that, we have Peron saying, Look at that long, sweaty hair as she's taking mm-hmm. off her, you know her helmet and all that. And then, and then Lauren says, Lieutenant Peron, can you accurately describe a beach scene? 
I need a man of your talents working for me in the city. <laughs> well, and, and then, you know, later on, Paran comes is coming up to give his report to her, and she just happens to be undressing. I have wow. a lot of comments about okay, that. Okay, okay. Well, we'll get to that part later. But let's let's go back a minute. Yep, certainly. Let's go back for just a minute and, and talk about what's like what what plot points are happening here. So Lorne is in town to figure out what the heck is going on. There's been a massacre, um, but right away she sees it and she can tell that there's been sorcery. Mm-hmm. She's not a sorceress, but she can tell that there has been, she's connected to magic. So we find out that she is the Empress's mage killer, which is so badass. <laughs> so she can, she can sense the sorcery and she can sense the pattern of the mind behind it. So she can tell right away that, that something else has happened here. And she can obviously get some sort of flavor of what that was because right away she's like, who is not here that should be? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so they pinpoint that there are three huts where there were no bodies. They were just empty. And she's like, we need to find out who lived there. Mm-hmm. And of course, those are the huts owned by Riga and the, the fisherman and his daughter. Mm-hmm. So she's she is right on it. She yeah. is on top of Amanis's shit. You know, she is Mm -hmm. like, we're going to find out exactly who these people were. Um, So she has some sort of idea, but that's just another portion of magical abilities that are possible in this world. It also makes you wonder, is that because uh, Lorne is just so bright and so competent? Or is it because Amanis is a fucking maniac or or maybe a little of both? (laughs) Well, it's possible also that just as part of her supernatural ability, she's not able to tell like, you know, he possessed this Fisher girl, but maybe she can sort of get a sense of of what the plan was Mm. that was going on there or something that happened there. So she sends Peron to try and find a description of the fisherman and his daughter. And then she she sends the captain to find a list of recent recruits. Mm -hmm. So she even kind of guesses that that if one of these individuals has been turned, um, what their next step would be. Yeah, it's pretty insightful that she's able to to figure out. She's like, it's either the, the dad or the daughter. They definitely joined the military. Mm-hmm. Like, she's on it. Mm-hmm. So I love the way that this part of the narrative is built because we flash then back to sorry and i was you know a lot of times when we have different points of view we'll talk about all of this care what happens with this character and then what happens with this character but i love the back and forth here that as soon as she she indicates that she wants to find out you know what if if either of these individuals has tried to join the army we flip back to sorry and we realize that she's trying to join she's the trying army to join the army <laughs> So we end up at the um, the Itko Khan Recruiting Center. Mm-hmm. It's a poster on the wall. Right. <laughs> what would be on that poster? I bet Eric Allgaier knows. I bet he does. <laughs> and this scene is another one that is just will chill you to your bones. So um, we get it from the point of view of the staff sergeant who's super jaded super jaded his name is aragon he's aragorn's third cousin twice removed (laughs) that's exactly what i thought when i saw that yep and he's like they're like uh staff sergeant have you had any lunch he's like i had 
Tylenol. <laughs> he's like clearly nursing a hangover. Yeah. Like he's complaining about, you know, he's like the freaking adjunct of the emperor herself shows up uh-huh. and then disappears. And I don't know where they're coming from. And one of the came through those warrens, fucking freaky as hell. And a couple of significant things here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, the staff sergeant, who's not far away, has no idea that the massacre has happened. No idea. He knows that one of the captains rode off all in a tizzy. He knows a bunch of soldiers are gone yeah. and the adjunct showed up. Yeah. He has no idea what's just happened. Yep. Which I think is really fascinating because in our world, we don't get that. News no. spreads so fast. No. But when you go back and you read so many stories like that sort of fog of war of like yeah. how information doesn't disseminate through uh-huh. society is something you don't see a lot. So to yeah. me, that was a really um, that was a really cool characteristic. Yeah. So this Fisher girl shows up, all of 13 or so, mm-hmm. and the sergeant, like, swallows his kind of knee-jerk objections that any human being would have to sending a 13-year-old Khan's, to join the Marines. Khan's fist had made her instructions abundantly clear. If they had two arms, two legs, and a head, take them. Right. He grinned at the girl. She matched the fist's description perfectly. Yes. <laughs> I, that's the funniest part so far of, of the... Of, there's not a lot of humor here. Right. <laughs> you got to grab it when you can. But again, it's such a... Um, it's such a chilling portrait of what this society is like. hmm You know, and what living in this society has done to individuals in it. Because this person has a... He, this sergeant, he's got like a flickering conscience. He's kind of like, oh, what if that was my daughter? And he's like, oh, well, you know. Yeah. But he's just... Following orders. ...learned to squash it down. Uh, and and again, this is just so badass. You know, the, this little girl walks in and he's like, you realize what you're doing, right? <laughs> yeah. You re- you know where you are. And she's like, I want to be in the Genabakan campaign. In one arm's host. Like, she knows exactly, mm-hmm. you know? And then he looks in her eyes, and he's like, she has old, you know? I, and I love this trope. I never get tired of it. She has old eyes. Yeah. Like, and then he asks what her name is, and she's like, am I in? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And that's when we learn that she yeah, calls yeah. herself sorry. And you're like, damn! Yep, and I immediately flip back to the dramatis persona, and it says, sorry, Ninth Squad, a deadly killer in the guise of a young girl. And isn't that perfect? It like, is. Like, her name gets revealed after all of this buildup, and then you can switch back and read that. You know, I, I love, I love how the dramatis persona works with the narrative I love like it. that. Um, and the last thing we note about Sari as she's leaving is that her boots are covered in red mud, even though... That kind of mud isn't found around here, and yeah. it hasn't been raining. Bum, you know? bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. So now we move into the next section, which is Genos going to a town of Garam, Garom, Garam, however you say it. Uh, so this is where he's going to sort of try to investigate and get descriptions and figure out what's going on, right? But instead of you know walking into town and being like, "Does anybody know what?" He walks into town and it's freaking abandoned. It's completely abandoned. Except for the constabulary, which is full of dead bodies. And black pigeons. And black pigeons. Who do not make any attempt to flee when he opens the door. The bodies have all been suffocated or strangled. Yeah. By the pigeons. (laughs) 
which is not how you want to go. That's not how pigeons normally work either. (laughs) That's not how pigeons work. That's not how pigeons work. (laughs) I've been at a lot of bus stops. (laughs) Never once has a pigeon tried to strangle me. You know, Eric's tried to bum a smoke, but never. Erickson hits some very classic horror movie beats in this book. You know, the birds. Yeah. Um, Cujo. Like, <laughs> like all. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's, that's a point. There's some. There's a lot of like, like possess. You know, The Exorcist. Yeah, there are yeah. notes of all of those kind of classic horror. All films those horror in films. There. Yeah. yeah. Horror films, or as they call them in Russia, movies. <laughs> I can't get the birds thing out of my head though, mm-hmm. because. We have we have all of the reference to birds in the other section. We have the symbol of the bird, you know, that we get when right. we, you know, the, mal- the Malazan symbol is a claw. Uh, but he, in this chapter, in this section, he says this, he has this little quote, a conjuring of birds to keep mocking vigil. And I'm like, what? Like, there's something, there's more to this thing about birds that i don't understand Mm -hmm. you know and later when he's explaining it to lorne he has another really cryptic thing about the birds so i'm sure we'll figure out what it is but that's another one that i'm putting a pin in Mm -hmm. and the pin is huge like Mm -hmm. what's up with these birds like Mm -hmm. there's something going on the other thing i noted is he goes to i i guess he was trying to find like a list of People who, I don't know what he was looking for, but he Mm -hmm. goes over to the desk and there's paper and he picks it up and he says, the papyrus sheets fell apart under his touch, the leaves rotten and oily between his fingers. And I'm like, this just happened. It hasn't been Mm -hmm. long enough for papyrus to break down. Mm -hmm. Papyrus doesn't break down over like a week. There's something going on magical Mm -hmm. here, but I don't know what it is. The tracks have been covered very thoroughly. Yes. It's also significant to note that these people were all strangled and Sari was possessed by a person called the Rope, Mm. who was an assassin. I had not put that together. So as he's leaving this area, he's sort of got some time on the road to himself. And there are a few things that he said that I thought were really significant in his little you know, pondering while he's going down the road. The first off, he says, um, snatched out from the shadow of that sour-faced laconic captain in the garrison at Khan, the lieutenant had seen his prospects begin to rise quick. His father and his sisters were bound to be impressed, perhaps even awed by his achievement. And I'm like, achievement? You didn't achieve dick. Well, he got chosen to serve on the staff of the adjunct to the empress that's pretty significant he got snatched up for his clit tingling dimpled chin that is so foul i can't believe you said that (laughs) he got snatched up because he looked good in a uniform possibly i mean i'm not saying that he didn't keep his cool and Mm -hmm. have some good observations but so would almost any other soldier who had been there well, you are correct in, and I think this is definitely just part of Peron's character development, that, you know, events are kind of, have moved in his favor, and he's like, wow, look what I did. Yeah. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, but, however, he goes to, ref- he reflects on that further, and admits to himself that 
you know, him being so cool in that massacre was like 60% the fact that he had a cool horse. Yeah, yeah, It didn't bolt, like, you know, and the fact that it it bothered him deeply. I just think this section where it's basically just him going down the road, but before he meets Topper, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's him on a horse. Right. Like, from a plot standpoint, it couldn't be anything less, but I think there's a, a couple of really significant sort of internal uh, internal monologues that he has mm-hmm. that tell a lot about him. The next thing I noted is he's ta- he's going over in his mind, you know, all those dead bodies and blah, blah, blah. He says, but it was the horses that bothered him the most. Mm-hmm. He'd nearly wept for those horses. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you prideful son of a horse, you know, breeding nobleman, you care more about the horses than the people. I mean, that that didn't strike me quite the same way because I know people who are more upset if the dog dies than if the person <laughs> dies in the movie. Well, that's probably most people. In you know, fairness. for yeah, some yeah. people, they just they they feel that way. What struck me was Peron's sort of naivety, even in the face of everything he's just seen. So we have this sense of like, yes, he's he's seen some terrible things, but also he's just in the beginning of the journey of of terrible things. Doesn't he realize this is the beginning of the book? This is only the first yes. chapter. <laughs> so it really sets up what his arc is going to be and what kind of person is he going to turn into um, in the face of continuing <laughs> trauma. If he survives. If he survives, indeed. The other note I had in this section is that once again, he reflects on his father, his father instilling in him a sense of caution when dealing with the Empire, but he obviously didn't listen. Well, does that surprise you in the few pages you've gotten to know this? Nope, not really. (laughs) Character. And then we come upon Topper. Yes, we come upon Topper. Topper is a member of the Empress's personal guard. The Claw. The Claw. He's also a descendant of the Teast Andi, which is a sorceress race. I I always kind of think of them as the elves of this world. Mm. Gray-skinned. Gray-skinned kind of elvish race. He is known for assassinating the ruling family of Unta. So not a big favorite of Paran's family, I imagine. No, and that was another one where I... It took me a while of reading it back and forth to, to pick up on what was going on because what sort of happens is Topper shows up and he's in the, like there's a cold breath of wind and then all of a sudden, boom, this dude shows up out of nowhere. That's our second time that that's happened. But then this guy shows up and he seems to be polite and he's like, hey, I'm going to show you how to get there quick. Hey, I know you've been on the road. Let's sit down and, you know, share some wine and some bread. Uh, and then Peron's like, like, fuck you, you Topper. Dick. <laughs> I'm like, where did that come from? You know? But then but then I remember that he's from Unta. Yes. And Peron, He's a nobleman a from nobleman Unta. From Unta. And I'm like, wait a minute. Topper probably killed people that he knew, like friends of his. So then then it made more sense, but it took a while to put that together. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of that in this chapter of like mm-hmm. people just spontaneously out of the blue turning right and you not knowing why but it's so and again i think that's why for me the first time i read this book i was like what because when you have to dig for the context yeah 
um, if you don't do that, you're not you're going to miss all of this. And, and this character random. is just yeah. going to seem random and capricious. Yeah. And you're mm-hmm. like, what a dick. But when you do have to, to dig for the context, it makes it feel so much more authentic mm-hmm. because the author is not telling you every single thing. So, yeah, Peron does not think too highly of Topper, but Lorne sent him to bring him to her. So he's got to play nice ish. Yeah. So he sits there and he's like, I owe you nothing, Topper, except enmity. But then uh, he- and Topper says, I'm rubber, you're glue. <laughs> <laughs> Have some wine. And then not too long after that, Peron says to Topper, do you wish to hear what I found in Garam? Mm-hmm. He, Topper shrugged, if you need to. And then Peron says, perhaps I'd better await my audience with the adjunct. The claw smiled. You've begun to learn, Peron. Never be too easy with the knowledge you possess. Words are like coin. It pays to hoard. Now, I would think that just a throwaway line, except that we're in the midpoint of the first chapter, and it's come up twice. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to believe it's got to be important. So at this point, there's a ripple in reality, and uh, the Imperial Warren opens. So we get our first close-up look at how how the Warrens, which are the major source of magic in this in this universe, work. And it reminds me of the Ways from Wheel of Time, mm-hmm. but there it's a little more than that. But we know that by using this kind of magical Imperial Warren that's been built, that they're going to be able to travel three hundred leagues in a number of hours. Mm, yeah, Paran says. So, no god has claimed this warren, and you can kind of skip the toll associated with that. So we don't know quite what that means, no. but, mm-hmm. but there are these magical pathways, and usually there are gods associated with them, and there's a price that you have to pay to open them. And we saw Topper sort of, there's a wind, Topper shows up mm-hmm. in the first part, there was a wind and a monos and yes. cotillion show up, so it, we assume it's the same sort of thing. yes. What I'm sort of curious about is that they're just sort of sitting there and he's like, ah, our way is open. Right. As though it's not under his control. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you ring the bell and then, you know, the bus stops at the next stop. And like, mm-hmm. I'm curious about how that sort of works mechanically. Or it was under his control and he is just kind of playing yeah, some mind be. game. Yeah. He certainly, there is a... <laughs> For me, the funniest moment of all of this is when Topper is kind of trying to taunt Peron a little bit, and Peron just has a baller comeback. Yeah. Um, Topper says, oh, I apologize, Lieutenant, for mocking your ignorance. And Peron cuts him off and says, that's a risk you'll have to live with. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, this kid just does not stop. He's very maverick yeah. from Top Gun. He's very, mm-hmm. you know... He's not backing down. He's not backing down. Even if he should. Exactly. So they travel through this warren. It's not as safe as Topper wants Peron to believe that it is. Um, yeah, it's this world of like ash and aluminum and like <laughs> dust and just, you know, and it's it looks like it hasn't been, like there's nothing living in it. But mm-hmm. then all of a sudden there are like, trails where something has swept through Mm -hmm. and a spot of blood and it's Mm -hmm. like oh what does that mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) but no you don't get any right no answers in that yet but the 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 gateway empties into the imperial throne room yeah which we have to talk about yes uh because that's a terrible fucking idea like (laughs) 
Like, here's a magical gateway. I think we should have it open 30 feet from the Empress. <laughs> where she's just waiting. You know, I'm sure she's, you know, in this world where there are magical creatures who can utilize this, you know, when it says they built this, why are you going to put the entrance where? Move the goddamn palace. Like, don't <laughs> put the Empress. Like, that's a terrible idea. I mean, that's fair. It's a it's a tactical blunder. I'm just saying. <laughs> Seems like a bad idea. That's fair. So Peron gallops, ends up galloping like an asshole into the throne room, which is obviously a major kind of gaffe. Yeah. But, although I'm not sure how he could have known any differently. Exactly. But also right before that happens, like, so they arrive and we're like, ah, oh, we're here at our gate. And another one of these weird blowups happens. The, and this one I don't get the context for at all, right? Because Topper has been like, is like, yeah, I killed your friends, but I'm a nice guy. Have some wine. We'll have some glib conversation. And then they get to the gate, and right before Topper walks through, he spins and looks at Peron and says, you answer civility with arrogance, Lieutenant. You would do well to shed the noble hauteur. And then goes through. And I'm like, where the fuck did that come from? You know, I, I think it's probably just a response to the way that Peron has been. Not saying Peron doesn't deserve that advice. Um, so, yeah, it seems to what the way I read it is right before they go in, Peron has his amazing comeback, you know, mm. and then uh, Topper basically spends the whole trip kind of sulking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get back at you i've got a great comeback and then and then he doesn't warn him that oh hey you're about to when you go through yeah, this yeah, yeah. gateway it's gonna be in the throne room and and he, then he after the throne room interaction he kind of then stomps off yeah he does um, seem to set him up yeah absolutely to make an ass of himself um but peron t- manages to recover pretty well he kind of plays it off he makes a joke um the empress remembers him from that one interaction yeah. uh, that he witnessed as a boy. Where they didn't even interact, by the way. He exactly. was just in the background. Exactly. So that's a little scary impressive. <laughs> Topper is very taken aback that uh, there's something about Paran that he didn't know. Um, but he he takes her up to Lauren's room. He says, it's at the top of the tower. You don't need me to take you up there. And so Peron goes up and Lauren is like, oh, I was just changing. Oh, don't worry. I'm not concerned with modesty. So what I noted was, so right after that happens, you know, Peron halted, embarrassed. I'm not one for modesty, the adjunct said. Enter and close the door behind you. Peron did as he was bidden. He looked around. Faded tapestries lined the wall. Ragged furs covered the stone tile on the floor. The furniture, what little there was, was old, napon in style, and thus artless. He looked. He looked anywhere, anywhere but directly at her. Like he's so earlier. This, you know, you have the same note. I think we're on the same page, right? She. This is deliberate. Yes. Like she. Knew he was there, like we find out a little bit later. Well, she had plenty of time to hear him clomping up that, the steps. <laughs> like, there's no other people in this tower, and she's just like waiting there with like, like one know, arm out of one her arm shirt. out of her shirt. Is he coming? Is he coming? <laughs> I think that's him. Okay, now. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it struck me as well. Okay, yeah, that's very much the vibe I got. 
So Peron wants to be part of of hunting down this assassin. Um, but Lauren tells him that they're going to have to follow this from a distance, but that he's going to be central to it, but she's not going to tell him how or what he's supposed to do. She, she just He just needs to go and wait for his reassignment. So good luck there, Peron. Yeah. In that conversation, he's trying to explain to her what happens in Garam, and he says, Tales of Pigeons, I think the possibility was foreseen. She regarded him with a raised brow. Pardon, adjunct, he says. It seems that the Death's Heralds were birds. <laughs> it's very cryptic. Like what, again, there's more to this that they both understand that I clearly don't understand. So I think what she's saying is, so necromancy is a thing. And it sounds to me like she, well, there's a, there are ways of communicating with the dead. We know that this is what a wax witch does. Mm-hmm. So she would have a way of talking to those dead soldiers whoever but, whoever killed them right mean? however because they were killed by pigeons all they'd be able to tell her is we were killed by pigeons I was killed by a freaking pigeon <laughs> like, give me your french fries or i will fucking cut you <laughs> so i think that's what kind of what that context is and then and just how thoroughly the the tracks are covered and then we leave this section, Peron's going to go home, and what I think is the most cryptic part of this whole th- this whole chapter happens mm-hmm. right now. As he reaches the stairs, he heard what might have been a cough from the room behind him. It was hard to imagine it could have been anything else. I, mean, I think she was laughing at him. Oh. What did you think it was? I thought it was... Well, that goes that theory. Uh, what what did you think it was? <laughs> I thought it was either somebody who like in an adjacent room spying on their conversation or or somebody being assassinated. Mm. Laughing at me. I'm sorry, I, I... <laughs> So after this Peron goes for a visit home. Mm-hmm. He walks to his family's estates and I wrote a quote down here because it really struck me. So he's going back and he's he's reflecting on how different everything feels. The familiar sights struck Paran as something strange, something altered, not before his eyes, but in that unknowable place between his eyes and his thoughts. Hmm. I just think that's so brilliant in the way that it speaks to not only Paran's character arc that he's going through but also to the theme of how conflict changes a person mm, yeah and how you know soldiers come back and everything is the same but they're you know it's like through a different filter yeah for sure um i just thought that was put so brilliantly well and we can we can joke about how naive he is and how sort of full of himself he is, but what we can't deny is that what he says is true. He went through something dramatic and awful and terrible, and it changed him. Yes. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And then afterwards, in reflecting it, is when he started to think, perhaps I shouldn't be so proud of right. what I've, quote, achieved. Right. Maybe, like, he's, you can tell he's starting to get get it and that's kind of why you don't hate him yeah i think you're right because yeah because if you've listened to like so many of my comments are 
man, this guy's a real dick. Right. <laughs> but but you're right, because he seems to be changing, mm-hmm. you don't quite hate him. Yeah. So Peron goes home, and we don't meet anyone in his family except for his sister, Tavore. Tavor or Tavore? I don't know. Audiobook listeners, chime in. I'm going to say Tavore. Tavore. So um, we find out that the nobles of Unta trace their lineage back hundreds and hundreds of years, far before the Emperor Kellenved came. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a very old blood neighborhood. Um, Peron's room got changed into a home gym. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a strange house guard, like... Mm-hmm. Perfect white teeth. Uh, right. And he, he recognizes Peron, um, but he's never met him before. I did love the line. Ah, oh, was the, the tapestry lives. The tapestry lives. lives. I love that. <laughs> that was pretty good. So the, the interaction with his sister is tense. So she's kind of taken over managing the family's affairs. She's resentful of Peron for leaving and, you know, doing something that, that is seen as kind of, as not done among the nobility. Mm-hmm really, and, and not stepping up and taking on his responsibilities. They talk about their third sibling, um, Felicin, who, it, that's a name that we recognize because mm-hmm. it looks like she turns out to be a, some kind of scholar, eventually. Um, and they say that she's too soft for this world. She's too soft for any world. Yeah, that's the first we hear ab- about her. So I'll be excited to see if that, you know, what our actual introduction in history with her turns out to be. Yes. My only note that I wrote down is is about that tense sort of exchange where uh, Tavore says, have you been promoted? He smiled. Is the investment about to reap coin? <laughs> Reluctant as it was, we must still think in terms of potential influence, mustn't we? <laughs> And I'm like, in in case you were about to forget, he's mm-hmm. still a dick. <laughs> well, and poor Peron, so he's gotten he he's gotten picked to be a personal aide to the adjunct to the emperor, but he can't tell he anyone can't tell about anybody. it. Yeah, yeah. Because she because Lauren has told him explicitly, as far as anyone else is concerned, we're done. Like. Yep. You're you're going off. I mean, I'll still give you directions, but you're not. You and might get texts from me at three in the morning, <laughs> but you can't tell anybody. <laughs> We're not holding hands. <laughs> so the stage is set. Yeah, I, I'm pretty excited to learn more about the rest of his family, though. I'm excited to meet uh, Felicin, and I, I hope we get to meet his father, mm-hmm. find out more about what that's all about. Wh- which of the children... In the Peron household, do you think is the favorite? Oh, definitely Tavore. Oh, no, I would say Felicin. She's the baby. She's the baby. Yeah. You know, our kids keep asking me, who's your favorite kid? Who's your favorite kid? I always tell them the same thing. Arya Stark. (laughs) Obviously. So let's talk about Peron as kind of more of a little bit in depth. We know that he's he's a noble, he's good looking, he's cocky as hell. Hell yeah, he is. He he freaking interrupts the adjunct at a, at a couple of times. <laughs> this is someone that the the captain who outranks Peron is afraid of. You know, um, everyone else whose point of view we've seen is afraid of her. The scorpion in the imperial pocket. You know, and this is just a guy, and I want to say this is a guy who's never 
um, had had anyone say no to him or yeah. has, but but I don't He's think that's true. He's captain of the team. I, don't know. I mean, yeah, but what we know about his family is that he has lived constantly with their disapproval. You know, so it almost makes me think this is just someone who is completely inured to disapproval. He's kind of like, I don't care what anyone thinks. Like, Maybe. nobody yeah. ever approves of me, so I'm just going to do what do I want. Do whatever I want. Maybe his dad is just overbearing. It's his only son. Yeah. But he's also, he's very insecure, and he's sensitive about his youth. Yeah. You know? So that's something well, we saw in the prologue, and again, um, when we see him as a young man. I think he's sensitive about his noble blood as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he talks in, in in the most arrogant of ways on his way back to his house. He talks about you know, his noble blood and all the boon and disadvantage mm-hmm. that it brings, you know. But I think he's very sensitive to the idea that, like, he knows that everybody sort of knows who he is. So he's mm-hmm. kind of like a minor celebrity everywhere he goes. Right. And he's very aware of it. And yet he's aware that others resent him, you know, because yeah. he's obviously pretty, um, at least picks up on that. And how much of this sort of, I'm not going to follow in my father's footsteps, I'm going to join the army and become an officer mm-hmm. and a war hero. How mm-hmm. much of that is to get around that, to, to subvert that, to mm-hmm. to earn his own respect mm-hmm. rather than having people just think of him being his last name? I think that is definitely a, a driving force for this character. Um, and I, I was struck by um, the fact that he, even adult Paran, as he's doing his kind of time of reflection, wonders what that commander that he spoke to on the battlements would think of him now. So like <laughs> that conversation really stuck with him. Yeah. You know, and so here he had a conversation with someone who was what he wanted to be. It's like if if 15-year-old you met Tom Waits and Tom Waits yeah. was like, you'll never be a musician. Why would you, you know, want to Why be would a, you even want to? It's like, a terrible life, kid. <laughs> Hang it up if you know what's good for you. You know, um, he's met one of his heroes, and his hero is like told him not to do so. Except it would be more like this: it'd be like, "If you know what's good for you, leave it alone." <laughs> oh, babe, you gotta work on your Tom Waits. I've never tried to speak like Tom <laughs> that. Was <Waits> ballsy? <laughs> that was ballsy. <laughs> I've never tried. Uh, props. You know what? <laughs> well, you know, I have props. Hey, it's free content, man. Like. <laughs> Like, come on. <laughs> so Piranha's cocky, but he's not a caricature of, you know, entitled noble. He volunteers to lead the inspection detail, um, yeah. but mm-hmm. not because he he's not bothered by what he sees there. It, it actually shakes him up quite a bit. Well, yeah, and there's a certain degree of, of bravery and nobility mm-hmm. in that. I mean, it's not lead. It's not leading the charge into battle, but nonetheless, right. it's still a brave decision. He could have easily chosen not to, or had them. You know, I mean, he didn't have to do that, right? So you're, you know, the question that gets raised about Peron at this point in the story is: Is his bravado a product of his upbringing and his lingering kind of naivete, or is it? something that's going to transform into, you know, courage and bravery or something else down the line. And it's so, it's fascinating to watch this character kind of on the cusp of true adulthood. Like he's seen one massacre, but it's very obvious that he's going to see more. Yeah. Like you said, we're in chapter one 
And you just, and, and it's nothing compared to the horrors that his more seasoned comrades have seen. I, I really glossed over Peron when I first read this book. Like he was just kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, he's 22. He's an underwear model. Like, you know, <laughs> like 92% of all fantasy characters. Like, like I didn't hate him. I didn't like it. But digging into him a little more deeply, I, there's a lot more for me to be um, invested in. Well, what I like about Erickson's writing, and he does this with these characters, I, I think it's more pronounced with Lorne. But but what I'm what I'm pointing at here is that if you just sort of read what he says, mm-hmm. then you get the sort of typical rich boy, you know, captain of the little cross team mm-hmm. sort of character, right? But if you look at what he does, and you look at more of the behaviors, mm-hmm. so the showing instead of the telling portion of it, is where you sort of see that he is more substance mm-hmm. than you might initially think Mm -hmm. i think what i like most about peron comes up when he's in that time when he's riding to his family's estates and he's kind of telling the reader about the history of the nobility and how they they came to this part of the world as warlords and they took over and then they became sort of merchants and then they just became this this upper class and it says um, that, that Peron had imagined acquiring trappings that closed a circle, mm-hmm. a return to the blade. So he is like like searching for his own niche. He's yeah. searching for his own identity. And and that's it's very interesting to me. And the fact that he's he's someone who's been handed power and privilege and money, and all he has to do is sit in his fancy house and have tapestries woven of his face. Like yeah. <laughs> You know, but but he wants something more, and he's aspiring to something that that is more noble. Yeah, and you know, I think what he likes about it is that it wasn't given to his ancestors. Yes, and it, I mean, you can clearly see from the very beginning that he bristles at just sort of being given things from his father, uh, rather than having to do anything to earn it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's the motivation or not, we don't really know, but. Um, but you can tell that, as you said, he wants to carve his own niche. He doesn't want to just sit and continue to make a lot of money selling wine like his father did. You know, mm-hmm. he wants more than that. Well, there's a very compelling conflict that that is arising in this character between his his hatred and resentment of the empire and the empire being the only place that he can go to fulfill this need that he has. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it really comes out in his conversation with Topper when um, Topper tells him, you're, you're a part of a muscle now. Like you don't get to, to be mad at me for, for doing my job basically. Yeah, yeah. Like you've signed up, you're part of the machine and you need to fall into line. And I think that that's a really important moment, not just for, for Peran and his journey, but in telling us just what kind of, of nation we're dealing with and, and the worldview that's held by the kind of ruling class. Yeah. The other, you know, you talked about it earlier when you alluded to that moment, you talked about sort of the, the empire being a machine, you know, and it grinds, the machine grinds. And even with the little tiny bit that we know to this point, you know, we hear about overtaking this country, overtaking this country, overtaking mm-hmm. this battle, like this empire seems like it survives on conflict. Like it can't 
There's no peace, mm-hmm. and there never will be peace. This empire only exists to consume, and it can't work unless it is mm-hmm. at war and consuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, you never see anyone outside of Riga is the only person that ever questions whether the empire should continue as it is. It's like it's it's never even questioned. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Lorne for a minute. Let's talk about Lauren. She um, schemes in Helvetica. <laughs> I love that. Um, Lauren is is brilliant and dangerous, and and I the one kind of important quote that I pulled out about her was one that you mentioned already, um, where where she talks about how she she fights the urge to comfort the soldiers who have witnessed the massacre, and um and what she says about those gifts are not hers to give. Mm-hmm. So Lorne is part of this machine as well, and her role is to be the mage killer, kind of an assassin of sorcerers, mm-hmm. which is that's kind of. Lazine's bugaboo, you know. Yeah. Um, Kellenved obviously didn't have any those kind of rules, um, but but her job is to kind of hunt down magic killers. So she's she's pretty much a, a badass bee as as much as it gets. So it'll be interesting to watch her. As, is she going to develop into a villain, or is she kind of a reluctant antihero? You know, I, I feel like as her character goes, you're going to tell what be able to tell what Erickson is trying to say about the empire. You know, I think the characterization that we experience with her is very telling in this. When we compare how he characterizes Lorne versus how he characterizes uh, Ganos, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. Ganos, we hear all about his sisters, all about his father, all about his wishes, his desires. You get all about it. With Lorne, we get none of that. We yes. hear nothing about what other that one comment about comfort wanting to comfort is is about as in depth and personal as you get. Yeah, that's the most that's human yeah. that Every, comment mm-hmm. that we get. Everything else is her observing and behaving. You learn a lot about her in those behaviors and in the things she says, but but you don't really know anything about her. Uh, I, I also get the sense that like unlike Peron. She is very much aware of the game that she's playing, Mm -hmm. and she's very much an expert in Mm -hmm. that game. She reminds me in a very weird sort of way of Brayden from Kingkiller and Wise Man's Fear. Mm, Yes. Yes, that kind of schemer always two steps ahead. Yeah, playing the game at a different level than everybody else. So let's talk about what is your your overall impression so far of... The world of of Malazan, of the themes that it's exploring, um, just the kind of tone of the book. What are what are your impressions there? I'm down. You're down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just ended a series that was a good series, mm-hmm. but as you compared it, Cobb Salad, by the way, brilliant characterization, <laughs> like brilliant, char- very wholesome. It's the honeydew melon of. <laughs> I love Cobb salad, by the way. Yeah, I love honeydew melons. Like. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's a very different sort of experience. And mm-hmm. it's it's trying to be something very different. Right. That's yeah. not, it's not it's, faulting it. Yeah, direct comparisons aren't. aren't uh, yeah, it's an apples and oranges sort of thing. But 
we we've been living in an apple world and i'm ready for that tart tart citrus baby (laughs) get something something different you know and this is very tonally different very dark uh and i like i like my fantasy a little on the darker Mm -hmm. side and i like it when it wrestles a little bit more with some of the more unfortunate parts of like the human animal Mm -hmm. and our greed and our pettiness and our you know, and all of those things, which you get that mm-hmm. in Stormlight Archive, but it's not in the same way. Mm-hmm. No, and for me, it's a matter of preference. Um, I happen to like both, um, mm-hmm. kind of the more noble, bright fantasy and the dark fantasy. I like to switch back and forth because I can only take so much of either one. Yeah, um, understood. But, but and it is it was it was just a huge tonal shift to go from Oh my goodness. on um, the Stormlight Archive to this. You know, but we do get to tackle some meteor themes, you know, talking about imperialism and Erickson's world is just rife with real-world similarities at the yeah. thematic level. Absolutely. You know, nothing is similar in as far as, you know, specifics, but you know, it just talks about the evil that happens when people are complacent, you know, and how easy it is to perpetuate evil when you can absolve yourself of responsibility by telling yourself, I'm part of a machine. You know, mm-hmm. you look at the recruiter, you look at just the casual murder of Riga, you know, and and the kind of the way that the one-armed fisherman, the, the fisherman, you know, whose daughter we meet, the way that his really awful situation is just kind of tossed us out there. Absolutely, yeah. Like, of course, he's got one arm and debts to pay and nobody's going to, you know, just the brutality of this world is something that that kind of at least connects with me on like a visceral level of like, like, this is going to be an exploration of some of the worst parts of the world that we live in. Yeah, absolutely. And you can hope it's going to end up being kind of a hopeful exploration, but at this point, you don't know. So, you know, I always have to have another book to sort of read to stop yes. me from wanting to read ahead. Because you can only read two chapters at a time. Exactly, yes. yeah. So I just started uh, a Game of Thrones. Oh, Lordy. So <laughs> Good luck. I'll, you know. It's not really any better. i get you some Prozac, man. <laughs> I, I probably could have chosen something else, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> something a little less heavy. Wow. Yeah, that's that's dark. So what do you think of the magic system? What do you what do you what are your thoughts and understanding of that so far? So I mean at this point we we really have learned very little. Right. We know uh explodey magic. Explodey. Explodey magic. We know uh magical subway. Yes. Uh we also find out that there there's a very active connection between the real world, what I'll call the real world, and whoever or wherever a monison cotillion come from. Yes. We don't, they just seem to be otherworldly. I don't know if it's another planar thing or right. for all I know, they're coming from a continent a thousand miles. I don't right. know, right? Right. But we, but we know there's, um, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's a, a demons or a pl- another plane of existence right. or something going on. Um, they call themselves gods. Are they really? I'm going to mm-hmm. say no. Mm-hmm. I think they're just playing on the naivete of the, of the young Fisher girl. Mm-hmm. But clearly there, we learned about ascendants and Caladan right. Brood is apparently an ascendant mm-hmm. and he's, you know, broody. But beyond that, we don't really know. So we, right. we, we don't know a lot, but 
But I do, it, it does give me sort of a central question of, is this a world where there are, like, the gods are actively involved? We learn about burn and burn mm-hmm. sleep and right. a slumbering god, but... Are are there gods, or are these just super powerful beings who are mm-hmm. actually manip- like we don't really know? But mm-hmm. I, f- some either that I think is sort of the tale of what's really going on here. Right. A lot um, is we've got this empire, and it's just going to grind people down to death. But behind that, you have these ascendants and these demons, and uh, you know, are they really the powers at play? And the empress is just another pawn, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Those are the sort of questions that I'm asking myself. Mm-hmm. That sort of seems to be where it's going, but yeah. time will tell. We don't really know a lot about the magic. Yes. I have one last thing that I thought was interesting about the Malazan Empire in this world, and that for a fantasy novel, there is a fair amount of gender equality. Yeah. Like, there's mm-hmm. not that that trope of, like, the men go fight, the women stay home. Um, there are women in the army. The We know that the fist of of Ikokan is, is a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the empress. So um, well, And Lorne is supposed, like you said, is the mage killer. I mean, she yeah. seems to be, like, one of the supreme badasses. Yeah. And there's no sense of, like, but she's a woman, you know? Yeah, no one's, no one's like, Everyone's what? like, God, I hope she doesn't kill me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's that a neat well, part yeah. of the world building. So those were my notes. What do you think? I, I'm down for it. I think this might be the longest and most complicated opening episode for a project we've ever done. Yes, but I, for me, like I said, it just really increased my enjoyment of the book even more. We haven't even yet gotten to the part where initially in my reads that this book hooked me. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest, the first, even third time I read it, Chapter one, I was like, blah, 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 this kid. Yeah, whatever. The next chapter is when it kind of started to grab me a little bit. So, uh, but but I'm in, you know, and, and reading it again more slowly has has made me really enjoy it and pick up on it a lot more. So, I mean, hopefully that'll be the same for our listeners. You, you know, I've had to accept in my my later years that I, I'm more shallow than I like to think my, <laughs> of myself as being. <laughs> Because you can sort of hook me with like some really surface level tonal, mm-hmm. you know, aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And this series from the tiny little bit I've read has got those you. elements. It's It's got those elements for me. That sort of dark, mystical. The whole thing with Riga and the Fisher Girl mm-hmm. and Sorry, like, I'm in. You're in. I'm, I'm down for it. Well, and this is very, it's got a very classic fantasy vibe. You know, a lot of the kind of newer fantasy that's coming out is, I wish, I, I'm going to try and find the article. I, I read a really great article that that broke it down, the trends in new fantasy. Um, so these aren't my original thoughts, but, but the article talked about how newer fantasy tends to have a hook, mm-hmm. like a clever line or a very kind of exciting plot point that happens in the first paragraph that grabs you right away. Mm -hmm. Um, And newer fantasy is, it tends more towards character growth and and talking about characters than about world building. Mm -hmm. And this is a very classic fantasy. You know, you're going to get 
paragraphs of description. It's very Wheel of Time-ish in that you get lots of descriptions of places before mm-hmm. you get into any dialogue or meeting any characters. Um, and it, it, I, I, I like both of those styles of fantasy, by the way. Uh, older fantasy tends to, I think, respect their readers a lot more that like you don't kind of need that to get you into it yeah but yeah it does it rings more of of that kind of that old school fantasy well i really like when when as you said fantasy respects the authors quite a bit mm-hmm. there's been a big uptick and this is good i'm not this is not a criticism there's a, a big uptick in sort of you know, middle grade young adult fantasy. And I think mm-hmm. that's absolutely a great thing. That's the kind of fantasy that we started with, you know, right. that, that we yeah. that we got hooked on the genre with. Um, but now as an adult, you know, I like, I like the porterhouse. Yeah. Like, I like, you know, I like something that's a little more dense mm-hmm. that I have to really think about mm-hmm. and take my time and wade through because as we've mentioned I'm a real slow reader mm-hmm. so for me things that are light and fluffy it's like why am I wasting my time with this mm-hmm. like give me yeah. give me something with some depth to it yeah. because it takes me too long I, I just can't read a, a 600 page book that quick yeah you know I, you know so for me it needs to be dense otherwise you lose my interest yeah so I'm digging it nice so now we're in the portion of our show where we go through and we talk about our listener interactions. So typically before every episode, we'll put out a, tw- a tweet and a Facebook post saying, hey, we're 24, 48 hours from recording. Give us your questions. And then we, we do our best to answer as many of those questions as we can. With it being a new project, we have a lot of questions. Uh, we are also working on our longest episode ever, and we haven't even gotten to the questions yet. So we're going to have to move through them fairly quickly. I apologize if we if we kind of uh, run through them fast. So on Twitter, Keenan Hope, who is at, who is at Me, I'm So Smart, says, uh, how strong do you think the likely possession of the Fisher Girl by Riggle will turn out to be? Is it going to be two sort of personalities in one body, a merge between them? Will Riggle's presence die down? Uh, because right now it seems pretty strong. And uh, my thought is, Bitch ain't got no chance. Like, <laughs> yeah. like it's going to be Riga all the time. Yeah. Like, uh, between Riga and whatever Cotillion and Amanus are doing, all I right. think that Fisher girl is a vessel. Mm. Uh, he also says, uh, do you think the First Sword's death was just caused directly by Lacine in some way? Or was it actually due to betraying a, a god somehow, confirming the gods are actually quite active in this world? Maybe something that you could deal with and perhaps shouldn't fuck with. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I you know it's too early to know. I but if I had to guess, I'd say Lacine was directly involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel Wilson, who is a Cantor Valid name, says, "What in the shades, Mar, is going on with that Warren Portal system?" <laughs> oh, look, he agrees with me. I think it would be a bad idea to have one of the default <laughs> destinations be the throne room, <laughs> right? This is a terrible idea. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, Brooks Philippin <laughs> says, um, planning to listen along. So he just got the audio book and he's excited to, to join. So welcome back, Brooks. Now over to the Facebook page. Uh, we begin, and Brian Kemper says, when you saw the references to hold or hood, did you do a double take and say, fuck, hoid's in this world too? 
That's funny. I hadn't. I actually did like kept waiting for Hoyt being like, where's Hoyt in this world? I'm so used to looking for him. No, this world is way too dark and grimy for him. He's he's nothing to do with this world. Damone says, are you recovering okay? Are you? I think so. I think so. I'm hyped up. I'm excited. I've had so much fun with this book so far. Well, you know, it's been a long time since we've done something new. Right. So yes. th- we've been sort of in the same world for almost two years. So yeah. this is refreshing. Theo says, uh, two guys arrive and conjure up the wolf things. Are the two guys from the prologue who control the bit bridge burners, right? No. I don't think so. No, no, no. No, those that's the fiddler. And I have a prediction. I think the other dude was Whiskey Jack. Mm, I like it. But no, those are uh, the guys who conjure up the wolf things are sort of gods or demons or something, but different. Uh, George Gill says, let's do this. Okay. Let's do it, George. Let's do it, George. Uh, Theo says, (laughs) Theo Graham Brown says, what do you think of this? Cornwall has like 14% of all British place names, including a Z. Please respect our culture. These are Zs, not Zs. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very sorry. I, I did not mean to be insensitive. <laughs> Lori Phillips says, I still got about three hours of listening to Oathbringer, but I'm super excited to start a new book. Awesome. Um, Theo just says, also says, just to check. When Topper appears and is like, hey, come drink some of this wine I've got here. We were all, don't touch the wine. Are you insane? (laughs) No. I I, was not, but. I I was. (laughs) It crossed my mind as well. I'm like, is he just going to take that wine? Like, he did. (laughs) Uh, He also says, what did you think when the Chandrian turned up and took the little girl? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's very Chandrian-like for sure. Um, If you don't get all of our references, they're mostly back to Name of the Wind or other books that that we've read in the past. Uh, Matt Hedges says, Duke, what do you think is going on with this? Sorry, girl, I'm getting creepy vibes. I have no idea what to make of her feet inexplicably having red mud on them. Oh, she's like if Arya Stark had no conscience. Like, I love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't think she's going to be a good character. What did you think of the red mud? What is that from? I mean, it's clearly because she's, she arrived there after having just killed a bunch of people. Right. <laughs> or, I mean, she just came from uh, that town where right. all, where everyone was killed by all yeah. those wolves. She had to walk through yeah. l- probably literally miles of blood to get there. <laughs> so that that's what I what I think that was. I'm I'm ex- I'm excited um, about Sorry. I think she's going to be. She's going to be an Iron Maiden song come to life. Like, <laughs> Calvin Wallace says, of the characters you've met so far, who strikes you as the most capable and or threatening? I mean, Lorne, for sh- for sure. I think Amana strikes me as the biggest wild card. Because mm-hmm. obviously, super crazy powerful. But maybe not altogether there. Katrina Knudsen says, I-, I know it's early to speculate about her, but Sari and Lyft seem like they would get along, right? I don't no, know. I don't think they would get along at all. I don't know. I think Lyft would be able to see right through her and get a million miles away. I, I think Lyft would be like, hell to the no. No, thank you. Not I don't want any of that. dealing with that. Whew. Katrina also asks, and she, she gives a screenshot of the introductory paragraph for Topper. She says, green cloak, badass sword, rings on every hand, 
almost offering a choice of water between water and wine. Quoth, is that you? <laughs> no, he's too garish for Quoth. He had this I noted. He has rings on on both the upper and lower knuckles. Yes. Like so he's got like ten rings on one hand. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's kind of a douche move. So he can punch a bitch. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> also seems uncomfortable. <laughs> Vincent Grohovec says, any character you immediately disliked? I mean, Amana seems like... I mean, you're not supposed to like him. He seems pretty slimy. You're pretty much not supposed to like any of the captains or sergeants or... They're all just kind of... You know who I didn't like? Yeah. That guy who punched an old lady to death and then just kept <laughs> riding. What the hell? How dare you be ugly? <laughs> yeah, I, I I think my initial, I wasn't too sure of how to take Lauren at first. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, I think Amanus is the closest thing to just being yeah. somebody you just don't like. He's just a straight up baddie. Yeah, for, for sure, yeah. Ian James Crone says, so which characters do you think you have met so far are Erickson's old D&D characters? <laughs> well, so Peron is clearly... Definitely. Like a, like a first level fighter. Like yeah, he's absolutely. I mean, yeah, he's clearly... He reads like... He's a first level paladin. He reads yeah. like, a, like a character's backstory almost. Yeah. So uh, like more than anybody. I think Sari is way too... Uh, overpowered to actually mm-hmm. be a, a D&D character. Mm-hmm. But what a badass that would be. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think uh, I think the old dude on the um, on the parapet, the guy who I think is Whiskey Jack. Oh, yeah. That would be my guess, yep. Nora Hengledge says, off topic. Oh, boy, I love when they're off topic. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is going to be good. I always wondered if Chad is behind this old Tony on YouTube and if not, your voices and calm way of speaking are incredibly, incredibly similar. Chad, in case it's not you, just claim you manage it all. A job, the podcast, reading, time for family on top of a YouTube channel. I'm not, I'm not really at liberty to speak. <laughs> Jonathan Thornhill says, uh, fun storm-like question, if that's allowed. No. No, let no. it. I accept. We are done with that series. <laughs> marital strife intensifies (laughs) (laughs) no he says uh he says in the way of kings we see sadius insult renarn at elicar's feast dalinar steps in threatening sadius with a dalinar beatdown an oathbringer we see yasna lay the verbal smackdown on amaram which do you think would be the worst to be on the receiving end a dalinar blackthorn beatdown or yasna's else caller execution oh definitely wouldn't want to get on yasna's wrong side before oh, Dalinar. Well, which would be the worst to endure? I See, I would vote Dalinar. Because I think with Yasna, you'd just be dead. Like, it would just be, it would just be over. I mean, that's true. She would just burn a hole through your chest. And, you know, within seconds... You it, would you, disintegrate. You know, you'd, you'd be like, ha ha, women can't be king! And then, and then it would be over. It would just be <laughs> blackness. Like, you know, I think, whereas I think Dalinar would take several minutes to cave your skull in. <laughs> So I'm going to say Dalinar is the worst one. Gordon Ross. <laughs> Gordon Ross says, what's a Malazan? I don't know. It's what I, it's what I, I put in my mouth when I have a sore throat. I don't. <laughs> mm, the cool, refreshing taste of Malazan. 
<laughs> Vicks brand, Malazan. Don't rely on just any Malazan. Okay, so time for predictions. Wow, we moved through that quicker than I thought we would. Yeah. Now, now I have to predict stuff. Damn it. Um, also, one other announcement before uh, before we get into predictions. Uh, we didn't talk about it in the beginning, but we have a Pimp of the Week slash Pimp of the Month club where if you share about our show on social media or, or link back to us, some sort of demonstration uh, that you've gone out and pimped us out, yo, uh, you have an opportunity to win a cool swag of your choice from the Duke and Duchess Tea Public Store. So a cool coffee mug, perhaps a sporty bag for your laptop, or a cool three-quarters uh, sleeve tee. Like, I love my three-quarter sleeve tee. It's my favorite shirt. Uh, and our pimp of the week slash month drum roll please Brian Kemper. Hey. All right. So last time our winner was uh, Moet Nagar, uh, who asked that we donate something instead of uh, sending him a product, and it was called the the Advancement Project. The Advancement Project is okay, the charity that we donated to you. Uh, donated in your name. Thank you for that. So thank you for, for that very much. All right, and now we get to the uh, predictions phase where I will make predictions on what I think is going to happen in the near future and the far future of the series. Um, they are sometimes insightful, but usually wrong. Uh, and uh, I'm going to give you my predictions. I actually have several of them. Uh, I'm going to give them to you in order of confidence. So from the things that I think are most likely to the ones that I'm pretty sure are batshit crazy. Yes. All right. Uh, so my first one is Lacine wants to squash all the magic that's not under her control. Mm-hmm. This seems to be her major goal mm-hmm. is because she's clearly not opposed to magic because she was using magic to destroy other magic users. Right. Just the magic that she doesn't have control over. Yes. Uh, my next is the soldier in the clanking armor is Whiskey Jack. Okay. It's not by any means certain, but the Fiddler reports to Whiskey Jack mm-hmm. in the Ninth Squad, Second Army. Right. Now, um, he seems to be the senior bridge burner. Right. So, process of elimination, that's who I think it is. Uh, next, uh, Gano's father has some serious secrets that we don't yet know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Empire. Don't know what they are. Uh, next one is, I don't think Lacine survives the series. Mm-hmm. Next is, I don't believe that Sari's goal, at least Amanus and Cotillion, sent uh, Sari to assassinate Lacine. I think that's just a bonus. Mm. I think that's sort of a red herring. Mm-hmm. I don't deny that they would be more than happy if that happened, um, and I think Riga would be more than happy to stick a knife in Lacine. But it seems to me that that's like, maybe that is what they want, but it's coming right out of the gate telling you this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And they never sort of overtly say that. Mm-hmm. I think you're being led to believe that, but there's something more subtle at play. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I think Gamet, the house guard, mm-hmm. is a spy. Oh. I think that Amanus and Cotillion, and now I now and after I know that there's a glossary, this seems stupid, but <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, I think Amanus and Cotillion are the old emperor and first sword. Mm. Uh, and my last one is Burn is a slumbering god. 
All which right. that's the, I put that as my least likely, but now after knowing it's in the glossary, check. Yeah. One one for me. <laughs> so those are my predictions. I love it. So thank you all for listening to episode 118. In episode 119, we will cover chapters two and three of Gardens of the Moon. Uh, if you want to know more about us and you want to find more information about us, hang out, see us on social media, get some cool swag, you can find all of that information at the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. That's our website. You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. That's D as in David. N is in Nancy, D is in David podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at the Duke and Duchess uh, or on our Facebook group page um, at facebook.com slash group slash the D N D group. That's the place where most of the interaction is happening. So that's probably the place where you're most likely to be able to interact with us. But you can find us on all the social medias, uh, the Reddits, Goodreads, Instagram, just by searching for the Duke and Duchess podcast. If you don't put in podcast, you'll get very different results. (laughs) This has been a production of the No Pants Podcast Network. Thank you and good night. Good night, everybody. All right, good night, everybody. Bye-bye.